Hey everybody, it's Chris from the Whistle Stop Cafe in Mir, Alberta. As soon as that little ticker up top says there's people watching, I'm going to start my rant. Ooh, there it goes. Wow, six people watching. Ooh, 11 people. Nice. Okay, here we go. Over the last couple days, you have seen in the media uh, from both our side and the other side either outright attacks or minor little attacks on people that are involved with this convoy. Now, I'm going to remind you one more time to not just uh, blatantly follow or believe what somebody posts online. Figure it out for yourself. Use that gigantic brain of yours. Ask yourself if it's plausible and if it's probable and then make your decision. I've seen some people getting attacked saying, oh, this person used to be involved with this or this person used to be involved with that. So what? Are we not the same people who are trying to change people's minds right now? And you're going out there and spreading information saying that this person isn't legitimate or genuine because they used to think a different way. Our whole goal is to wake people up and help them use their heads and open their eyes to see what's going on. And yet some of the same people that are asking for that right now are attacking those who are trying to make it happen. And the one that really comes to mind is uh, a lady who we met here. Uh, and as far as we could tell, she's a great lady. When she was younger, like 10 years ago, um, she was with the Ontario Young Liberals, and she did some work for the Obama administration as a, I don't know, brought coffee or something like that. When you're 19 years old, have you ever heard the saying, if you're 19 and you're not a liberal, you don't have a heart. But if you're 30 and you're not a conservative, you don't have a brain. Have you ever heard that saying? When you're fresh out of school, fresh out of university, um, being involved with something like that is like that's the moon and the stars because liberal means being inclusive and accepting and and helping people and and making sure no one's left behind and you want to be part of that because that's what you've been taught the entire time you're in school by the time you're 30 you realize that the liberalism they're talking about right now the liberal party what they're promoting as liberal ideology is not liberal ideology it's a path to friggin' communism is what it is. Because at the end of the day, the liberal mantra now is you will own nothing and be happy. So people are fooled by that. They believe they're a liberal because they want to be accepting of people. And that's what liberal is. They want to be progressive. And that's what liberal is. But these days, our conservative party in Canada, the CPC, is more classic liberal than the Liberal Party is. And some of the people that are involved with this when they were younger, yeah, sure, they, they, they had jobs that worked for different organizations 
And now they've been standing up and doing things and fighting this for the last year or two. Don't be fooled. The Trudeau government just paid something like, I can't remember, 12 or $18 million hiring a PR firm to pick every person apart in this group here in Ottawa and, and shred it, to discredit it, put little things out in the news about certain people and have others turn against them for it. That's what they've done and don't fall into that trap. Then we have, can I say dipshits? Yes. I'm not going to say it because I actually like the guy. Then we have guys like the angry Albertan still harping about where's the money going? Well, where's all the fundraise money going? Who's responsible for this? The organizers are getting rich. Josh, cut it out. You're being stupid and you're not a stupid guy. When there's this much money involved, it's not one person or four people that control it. It's accountants and lawyers and a finance committee and multiple signatures and accountability and transparency so that when it's scrutinized by the government, it will hold up. Use your friggin' head. I'm so sick of that. We're seeing that more and more and more. These groups, who the hell is this amazing Polly? The only thing that's amazing to me about what this amazing Polly is saying is it's amazing to me how she gets every single thing wrong in these little ridiculous podcasts she does and nobody notices. How do you start a podcast getting everything wrong and then use that to launch into your attack on certain people that are involved with what you're talking about and expect people to believe you? And the sad thing is people are believing this. Somehow throughout this whole thing, even with all the attacks from people like the angry Albertan, who I actually have a little respect for, through all of this, I've maintained, or I've, I've managed to gain the trust of a lot of people. They seem to trust what I say. I try really hard to make sure that what I'm saying is accurate. Um, when I know I'm wrong about something, I come out and say it. I, I try and tell the truth. I try, I try and do what I say I'm going to do. And people have put some trust in me. And I'm extremely humbled for that. And right now, I'm asking people, if you really say that you trust me and you believe in me and you believe in what I'm trying to do and you believe in this convoy, calm your tits, even if you don't have any. And stop jumping on these stupid, idiotic hit pieces that are designed to do nothing more than derail what's happening here. There is one goal here, end the mandates. There are a lot of people who don't want to end the mandates and most of them are benefiting financially from it. Now there's a huge group of people here who have set their lives aside, put their lives on hold, not seen their children in three weeks or more because they're working hard either in front of the scenes or behind the scenes to make this happen. Do you really, really think that it's just as easy as bringing a bunch of trucks to Ottawa and then having some little dance parties in, at Parliament Hill, there's way more going on than what you realize. There are people that are literally doing 16 or 18 hour days behind the scenes trying to make sure that things go smoothly here. Working with the city, trying to work with the government, working with police services, trying to liaise with the truckers. Do you have any idea how difficult it is to move $10 million around? 
There's people out there saying, oh, well, the truckers aren't getting this. The truckers aren't getting that. And I get it. But you need to understand this is being attacked at every turn. The fundraisers have both been attacked. The government doesn't want the truckers to get any support. <coughs> so they're doing whatever they can to stop that flow of money. They attacked the GoFundMe, got it shut down because they're a bunch of lying, lying, lying pants. They attacked the Give, Send, Go, but Give, Send, Go, they have some balls, or maybe they don't. I don't know if they're women or men. But regardless, they have some balls, and they said, I'm sorry, who are you, Ontario provincial government? Um, we're an American company, and you have no jurisdiction here, and we'll give the money that was donated to the people that are supposed to receive it. Now, take that money and put it in a bank account in Canada, and what do you think the government's going to do? They block it at every turn. That's why there's lawyers who we've been... When I say we, I mean this group has been flying in to try and deal with some of this stuff because this is way more than a few people can deal with. So Tamara Leach, BJ um, Dichter, whatever his name is, uh, Chris Barber, uh, Bridget, they're spokespeople because they either have, actually they all have skin in the game and somebody needs to speak. But for every one person you see speaking, there's probably a dozen people in the background supporting what's going on and making sure that when they're speaking, they have something to speak about. Your efforts would be way, way better served taking episodes of the amazing Polly who's trashing the people involved with this and picking it apart and saying, give your damn head a shake. Because if you're going to actually do that and lie to people on this freedom side and try and get them to turn against the people who are working to get our rights and freedoms back, then maybe they are this controlled opposition or psyops or whatever. And there's some people who I consider my friends who are listening to this right now who have gone full... Can I say that? No, I'm not going to say that part. So who have gone full steam ahead? No, that's my thing. Full full Looney Tunes in attacking this and they're they're doing these podcasts quoting this amazing Polly and some of these other little hit pieces and saying that oh the truckers need to be careful because of this because of that you're not doing anybody any favors the only thing you're doing is you're helping people like that make more Facebook ad revenue because they're a bunch of dramatic dramatic pantses and they're getting more Facebook followers. I wonder how many followers I'm going to lose after this video. But I don't care. Because this stuff is important. And it's important that people on both sides of the fence... <coughs> remove their heads from their behinds. And pay the F attention to what's going on. So... Uh, later on this afternoon, after we have the debate with doctors Hodgkinson, Bridal, um, Paul Alexander, and uh, Dr. Tam and her team of cronies, yes, they invited them to an event. We're heading to the, uh, the place now. After that, I'm going to work on getting all these people in a room together, and I'm going to ask them who they are, why they're doing this, um, what they're sacrificing, and I'm going to try and get some of these questions answered, even though I think a lot of them are stupid questions. So Tamara was involved in Wexit. Big friggin' deal. 
That Wexit movement was the fastest, uh, the fastest growing movement I had ever seen until this convoy. And the reason is because people were desperate. They wanted something to put hope in. They wanted to be free of the federal government's ridiculous treatment of Alberta and the Western provinces. And so a lot of people supported Wexit, as did I. Didn't last long for me because I saw what happened. And unfortunately, one of the same people who was responsible for causing problems and almost derailing the Wild Rose Independence Party, he also had a hand in derailing Wexit. And he tried to derail the Alberta Unity Project, which I'm going to be speaking about in some of my later videos. And on that note, I'm going to mention... If you want, if, you, if you're following the Alberta Unity Project, that AUP, the Alberta Unity Project that you see on Facebook is a fraud, it's a fake, it's been hijacked, it was done by people who more, were more interested in, in taking salaries and getting pickup trucks than they were saving Alberta from the federal government. So unfollow that page and watch for the truth about the core group of people who believe in a free and independent Alberta, watch for that coming up soon, because I'm about to drop that bombshell a little bit later. Unfortunately, right now, I have bigger things on my hands, and we're trying to fight for every single Canadian here. Because while I'm a... Oh, that's the other thing. People are trashing people for being part of separatist movement. Guess what? So am I. Is it because I hate Canada? No, I love Canada. I love my country. I also love my mother, but I had to move out of her house at one point because I didn't want to live under those rules. I was an adult and I wanted to be, be independent. So me being a separatist does not mean that I don't love Canada and love the people in this country and want to do whatever I can to make life better for them. I absolutely do. This is my battle today and that's my battle tomorrow. I think I got really sidetracked as I was talking about something that was really important. My point is, before you go blindly believing what some wacko podcaster is putting on their, their thing, talking about how this is all a conspiracy and all of these people are planted and it has nothing to do with freedom or the truckers or anything like that, use your heads. And if you have any faith in me or any trust in me, please know that all of these people, except for maybe one or two, I talk to these people on a personal level. And if I have any concerns about anyone or any group that's involved in this Freedom Convoy, I will be the first to tell you. And you can choose to believe some strange person sitting in some strange room in some strange location talking about this, or... You can listen to what I'm saying because I'm here and I talk to these people, I shake their hands and I hug them and I hear their stories. So it may not be information right from the horse's mouth, but at least it's right from the donkey's mouth, as lots of people have called me. I don't know why they call me a donkey. It's weird. Anyway, that's all I have for now. I have to go and get prepared for this uh, uh, historic policy-changing, life-changing debate between some of the world's most respected doctors and uh, that Tam guy. I know, I know she's a woman. I'm sorry. I shouldn't joke like that. It's disrespectful, but some people laugh. I'm going to go prepare for that, and I'm going to continue to bring you as accurate information as I can and 
please know that when I speak, I'm not just speaking about what I think or assume in most cases. I am actually, I talk to all of these people. In the leadership group of the convoy, I talk to them. The truckers, I talk to them. The doctors, I talk to them. The lawyers, I talk to them. The people dealing with the money and fundraising, I talk to them. And the reason I get to talk to them is because over the last while, I've walked the walk and I've talked the talk and people actually trust me to speak to me about these things. And if you trust me, calm your tits. And if there are actually any problems with the, the management or the leadership of this group, I promise you, I will let you know. But as of right now, it's all good. And the people that are involved, I, genu I believe they are genuinely here for the right reasons. And you don't have to keep attacking them. Put your focus back on the federal government, the mandates, and our goal of ending the mandates. Peace out. Coming up very shortly, a potential meeting with uh, some of the greatest minds in the world and representatives of our federal health authority. Check back soon. So welcome, my name is Dr. Laura Braden and I'll be facilitating the discussions today. Um, I'm a molecular biologist from PEI, finds myself in Ottawa for this momentous occasion. Um, just as a reminder, can you all please turn off your ringers? So, as I mentioned and, and as you are all aware, we sent an invitation on behalf of Dr. Alexander, Dr. Bridal and Dr. Hodkinson to senior health representatives of public health, uh, Dr. Teresa Tam and Dr. Howard New, as well as the chair of NASI, Dr. Shelley Deeks. We unfortunately did not re receive a response to our invitation and we are aware that they are all actually now blocking emails. So we do not expect them to join us today. However, we have a momentous occasion, as I've mentioned, with some of the leading experts, subject matter experts in COVID, including immunology, virology, epidemiology, and medicine. So we are going to turn this event into uh, a live Q&A with doctors. As mentioned, Dr. Roger Hodkinson, Dr. Paul Alexander, and Dr. Byron Bridal. This is how today will go. Um, I will call upon uh, doctors one by one to come up and give uh, a short, short <laughs> introduction of themselves and, the, uh, and, and their qualifications, followed by a brief overview of some of the science that they will be discussing, uh, about 10 minutes or so. Um, following that, we will then open the floor for questions from the press. I don't see any mainstream legacy media here. 
but that's okay because we have lots of folks waiting to ask questions. So if you have questions coming from live streams, um, we will facilitate those as best possible. Please remember this is going to be a courteous, respectful event. The intention was to discuss the science pertaining to COVID-19, the declared apparent emergency, and any associated mandates. So I think if there's nothing else from me, I'm going to first welcome Dr. Paul Alexander uh, to start off this event. And again, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you guys very much for having me again and um, I've tried to be very brief so I'm going to give my overview of our COVID stretching from the beginning um, January February of 2020 and uh, to today as, as the way I see it it's kind of like a 50,000 foot level uh, view not too much granularity because you know we want to engage everyone quickly and we have Dr. Hodkinson and Brittle to come so um, that's my opening slide, Dr. Paul Alexander, Dr. Bird and myself. My background training is in epidemiology from the University of Toronto. I also did graduate work at York University. From the epidemiology at UFT, um, I did a short program at Johns Hopkins, civic program in bioterrorism, biological warfare, how to weaponize pathogen, etc., and how a small city like Baltimore would respond. Um, from there, I went on to Oxford in clinical epidemiology and evidence-based medicine. And I worked under people like Dr. Carl Hennigan, et cetera. These are the global leaders in, in EBM. And from there, I went on to McMaster in Hamilton um, for a doctorate and a postdoc with Dr. Gordon Guyatt, who founded evidence-based medicine with Dr. David Sackett. And um, Dr. Guyatt and me have remained personal friends. I support his research globally still everything to do with research methods, randomized trials, meta-analyses, network meta-analyses, systematic reviews, all methods that the global research community, the medical field uses, I'm part of in terms of refining and updating it. Um, so zooming into this discussion, because of my background skills, I worked with WHO in 2008 as a regional epidemiologist for Europe, working uh, the countries under me the desk that I held in uh, Copenhagen was uh, Russia, Ukraine, Turkey, Poland. And um, from there, I did get, a, I was asked by WHO Pan American Health, Washington, D.C., to develop a training program for low and middle income countries uh, in terms of evidence based medicine and epidemiology. During 2019, when COVID began to rear its head in January, February of 2020, Although I would argue, and we have evidence to show that COVID probably was circulating mid-2019, and that's a separate discussion, but WHO asked me to pivot my role as their pandemic advisor for evidence sensitive. So I actually worked as WHO's Pan American Health COVID advisor, all things evidence, uh, at the beginning of this pandemic. Whilst doing that, um, I got tapped by the Trump administration, White House, um, to come to Washington to be their senior COVID pandemic advisor based on the skills that I gained at McMaster. So I have to say out of the box that I'm very honored, very privileged as a Canadian citizen. I do have status in the United States, but 
I'm a Canadian citizen and uh, I gained a lot of my skills from McMaster University in Oxford and I wanted to say that here. I'm, I'm a personal friend of Dr. Gordon Guy. I have nothing negative to say about McMaster. It is a place that I love and I will always help. So let me move forward. <clears throat> so my first slide, background. Um, I put C CBC has lied. <laughs> we did an interview here following um, a discussion that we had, another interview, and the CBC interviewer interviewed me and asked me a question. Now, I had had conversations with them prior on the phone, and we talked about, you know, what is your view on the response? Many people had died. What do you think should happen to public health officials and stuff? So we had our telephone discussion, but we made arrangements that I'll be interviewed here in person. During the in-person interview, other people taped it, but C CBC went on print that I stated that public health officials should be jailed. Now, because of the deaths, we have lost a lot of people across the world, particularly in Canada, because of the lockdown policies and school closures and vaccine and uh, mass mandates, etc. I am on record stating this. I worked in the United States government, and Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, their policies killed people. I've been on record stating this, and I'll state it again. <coughs> but when I was interviewed out of the, outside of this room, the, the, the interviewer asked me, and I said, well, it's not my position to decide who's to go to jail. That's not my business. But if you ask me, they should be fired. I would fire them all. I would fire everyone in the federal public health response. Tom knew everybody. Fire them, everybody. I would fire everybody who works for Doug Ford and his science table, complete abject failure, his science table. I'd fire everybody in the Toronto response. And that reporter wrote that I stated that these people should be jailed. So I want to go on record to say that we actually have the video of what I said, and I am putting it up on my substack. Anyway, first line, COVID amenable to stratification. We knew this in January and February of 2020 that COVID was amenable to risk stratification. That meant that your baseline risk, oh, I'm sorry, your baseline risk was prognostic on your subsequent mortality or severity of outcome. That meant that the risk that you brought to the table will determine what happens to you with COVID. So we understood people like Bhattacharya, Kuldorf, Sunicha Gupta, myself, Scott Atlas, we understood that you have a more focused protection where we use an age restratified approach to dealing with this pandemic and not carte blanche lockdowns or school closures. We argued with countries, we argued with Canada, we argued with the UK, the United States, etc. And I was in the administration, but to, to no avail because it was a battle. You saw Trump daily on that platform podium fighting with his own task force as he tried to open his society and open schools, because we were getting the data to show that the lockdowns were killing people. The school closures were killing children. They were causing children to commit suicide. We saw the failures, yet, it, as you saw, it was almost a clunker daily in the United States government. I was on the back end of it, fighting behind the scenes with Dr. Atlas, and it was not an easy situation. It was actually a horrible situation. Anyway, so I mentioned the age was stratified approach. Look, January, February of 2020, and now we're in February of 2022. 
my position remains the same. All we needed to do with this virus was we strongly protect the vulnerable in your society. Double down, triple down protections. We do everything we can in a nursing home, assisted living, your private homes. But we message vitamin D supplementation because of its strong role in cellular immunity, immune response. We message proper body weight control because we found out quite early on that obesity emerged as the superloaded risk factor behind age. So we needed to tell people to get your weight under control. That would have been a very positive step, yet our public health officials squandered two years. But the main message has always been, you strongly protect the elderly in your society, and you allow the rest of the society, the young children, the infants, the young persons, the teenagers, the young adults, the middle-aged adults, well, healthy people, you allow them to live largely unfettered lives. You do not lock the society down. You do not close schools. We never should have done this. And that was a catastrophic failure by the federal government of Canada and a catastrophic failure by Doug Ford and the provincial government. At all levels of government, we harmed people with these lockdowns. And we studied it, and we have shown, I have published in AIER, uh, I have published in Brownstone, I've researched with many global scientists, and we've shown that lockdowns killed thousands of people beyond the virus. School closures killed many children. In the United States of America, while I was there, I can tell you there are things I cannot discuss, but things I can't. We were getting reports on a daily basis coming up from the states and winding it up to the Oval, and I can tell you that Trump knew, and that is why you were seeing him. It looked like a, a clown car show. But he was literally fighting the task force because he knew he was getting reports from the states from us that little children, 8, 9, 10 years old, were found hung in their bedrooms. They committed suicide because of the school closures and lockdowns. This was a real issue. But the media in America, the legacy media, decided that they will hide that information from the public because Trump was ramping up the election year, and if they reported the actual data of what was happening to children, then Trump would look good. So they decided that they would lock it out, but we were seeing the data. So behind the scenes, there was this vicious fight with Dr. Atlas and the task force, myself and Fauci. It is well documented, and well, as I said, it, has, it was a horrible event for me. Anyway, Dr. Donald Henderson, who eradicated smallpox, those of you who would know, um, in the 1970s, etc. He wrote a seminal paper in 2006 where it, it surrounded pandemic preparedness. I actually go to know Dr. Henderson personally because when I did that biological warfare program at Johns Hopkins, it was his program, and I met him and I talked to him about probably doing my doctorate with him, and he agreed, but I decided to go with Dr. Gayat in Canada. But these statements by Dr. Donald Henderson, written in 2006, remain seminal and key today. And they are as follows. And this is what I mean by we should have never locked this society down. Experience has shown that communities faced with epidemics or other adverse events respond best and with the least anxiety when the normal social functioning of the community is least disrupted. Strong political and public health leadership to provide reassurance and to ensure 
that needed medical care services are provided are critical elements. If either is seen to be less than optimal, a manageable epidemic could move toward catastrophe. Mm. And that is what we had in Canada. We had catastrophe by Theresa Tam and Howard New, and we had devastation by Doug Ford and his COVID team. It was utter failure. Now, quickly, what did we find over the two years in US, Canada, UK, Australia, etc.? Well, as I said, I did the research with many scientists globally, and we've published all of these different papers. Now, these are actual hardcore scientific papers, but the medical research community decided to dox us and cancel us. They will not let us publish in peer review. So we decided, I decided as a lead scientist, that we will publish as op-eds. So we've been publishing in AIER, Brownstone, everywhere that would take it. And we've published on the catastrophic effects of the lockdowns. We've looked at all of the science, and we could find not one society in this world, not one country, not one setting where any lockdown worked to curb transmission or reduce the risk of death. We looked at masking. I can tell you, I've studied masking up and down. I'm considered an expert on these COVID masks, the blue surgical masks and the white masks. They are utter garbage. They have always been effective. surgical masks and white masks have never worked, never, and they're actually very toxic, the chemicals in them, toxic to our children. So I'm telling you, this is my scientific view, but these are papers published. These are published papers that we that I've put together. Good. In terms of school closures, we looked at all of the science in every country in this world. And there's not one location, no country, no setting, no state, nothing, no province, where school closures work to curb transmission. In fact, we've shown that the school closures harmed children, devastatingly harmed children, because children committed suicide because of these school closures. School closures that happened right here in Ontario. We looked at, I, I recently published, well, it says 400, but it's now 500 papers. We've pulled together for the brownstone to look at everything. Lockdown, school closures, shelter in place, every policy. And we have shown in not one example, not one, did any of these policies work. In fact, Johns Hopkins recently published last week a seminal paper where they have now decided to study, and they show that lockdowns failed, complete failure. And they're actually one year too late because we had already published the science. I also recently published again on the masks. I looked at 150 studies that showed that the masks, are, the masks are worthless. They're ineffective. They just do not work, period. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There are two RCTs on deck. One is the Danish mask study. That shows that there's no difference between mask and mask. And there's the one that's the cluster randomized in uh, Bangladesh. And uh, that study uh, drifts between zero effectiveness to about a very modest 12 to 13% reduction. But we have serious concerns with the methodology, so we don't take that diversity seriously. Um, this one I highlighted here, the attack on scientific dissent. As you know, Dr. Birdle here is one of the people in Canada who came forward with the science to show us a real, real clarion call. And I think one day he should get the Nobel Prize because it was his work that showed us the damage to the vasculature, to the endothelial layer of the vasculature in the human population. Uh, using the animal model, 
but also we had human, human research to show that the spike protein that our body produces as a response to the vaccine is an actual endothelial pathogen and damages the vasculature of the heart. And uh, his work with Dr. Patrick Whelan, the seminal work, and actually clued the rest of the world into the situation with these vaccines. Because COVID has emerged to us as less as a, of a respiratory illness. COVID has become clearer to us now that it is, it is a vascular illness. It is a disease of the vasculature. And often, the desaturation and the breathing difficulties that people experience is due to the, to the we have these massive number of <coughs> microthrombi blood clots that manifest across the body due to the vaccine. Due to the infection also, the natural infection, but the vaccine mirrors the pathology from the natural infection. And that is why we question, why would you make a vaccine that is delivering a payload that is as devastating as the actual infection? Anyway, so my view, the Liberal government, the Right Honorable Prime Minister Trudeau and the Provincial Premier have been failures. Um, I'm not saying it personally towards them because I don't know them. Um, I actually have been on record saying I wish the Prime Minister of this country could succeed. I'm not discussing my politics here. Why? Because if a Prime Minister succeeds, the rest of the country succeeds. So I want my Prime Minister, whomever, to succeed. But Trudeau made a catastrophic mistake with these people in his task force, his COVID task force, because they have failed. Look at where we are. They told you, take... They locked you down, they closed schools, they masked us for two years, they told you take one shot, they said no, take two, and then after two they say, you know what, you need to put the mask back on. And now you're going to University of Western Ontario, they say, well, two shots, you need three. And then with that mask, you still need to social distance. So it is just garbage. They don't know what the hell they're doing. Yes. The federal government... <laughs> This quick slide. So I have been railing against the cafe latte class, the laptop class, we call it, the pink in the air, sipping the coffee class. Those were the people, the supervisors and the managers in this country and this societies who could have afforded to shelter in place and shield. They could have remote work. But the poor people in our society, often the women in our society, often the minority people, the children in the society, they could not shield. They had to still go out there and front face and face the virus. And when we look at studies, we showed that we looked at the 30 highest income uh, communities in Toronto versus the 30 lowest income communities in Toronto. And we showed that we shifted the burden of infection and the burden of hospitalization and death to the poor in society. And that is the tragedy of COVID. We shifted the burden from the wealthier laptop class to the poorer class. And we must never allow them to lock us down and do this again, because it is the poor in the society that suffers first. And I pull up this chart to show you. This is one a UK analysis showing that the managers and directors and senior officials in the United Kingdom and those in professional occupations like lawyers, accountants, and whomever, they have a lower risk of death. They had a lower risk of death than the front-facing people, process, plant and machine operators, people who work in the society itself. And that's the main message. 
I wanted to tell you something also, children. In the United States, children get their eyes tested for the first time in school, often, whether rich or poor. It's part of society. Children get their ears tested for the first time in school. What a lot of these laptop class and people like Doug Ford and they and all of his employees, his managers and Prime Minister Trudeau and Fauci and they, what they did not understand is, in the United States as an example, children get their only meal in school. Children don't eat breakfast. Many, most of the poor children, they don't eat dinner. They only eat lunch and they get it as part of the school feeding program. So when these people closed schools for a year at a time, they didn't know what we knew. Because I was getting the reports with Dr. Atlas coming up from the States. Children were starving. Closing schools starved children in the United States of America for months on end. And people, nobody stopped to think about the implications of closing schools. Children had no food. And it is such a personal, private issue that you didn't want to, parents, these parents, particularly people living on the margin, they're etching out a living, and Johnny and Susie will become a doctor and lawyer one day, or engineer, but it's nobody's business that Johnny and Susie did not have a laptop, or did not have broadband internet, or a webcam, but by closing schools and doing what we did, you flesh them out, and you embarrass poor people, you embarrass poor children in Ontario, and in parts of Canada to come to the teacher and say, you know, I don't have a webcam. My mommy don't have broadband. That is a, look, I, I'm an immigrant. That is a personal issue. That's a catastrophic demeaning thing for me to come to a stranger to tell you my personal financial circumstance. It's none of your business. But you government officials put people in that situation. You embarrass Johnny. And once little children know Johnny's situation, they insult him daily and Susie. People didn't understand the catastrophic failure of school closures. We must punish our governments if they do this again. Never allow this again, ever. Yeah. Look, there's so much to say. I came here with so many slides. Everything was a failure and a lie. They doomed this pandemic response from the, from the yeah. start in America and Canada just followed. This issue about asymptomatic transmission, that was rare. That was a lie. This virus, this asymptomatic transmission was bogus. We studied it. We looked at it. The issue of recurrent infection, that also is a very rare situation. That was a lie used to force you to comply to lockdown and to mask. The issue of the PCR test, we've used our over-cycle test. We told these people, you cycle over 24 cycle count, you're going to be picking up viral dust. You're going to be picking up fragments of non-culturable, non-viable virus. 95% of people who tested positive in Ontario and in Canada were false positive. We know that because they were cycling at 40 and 45. All of those people were not positive people who you took out of circulation. You closed schools. You closed universities wrongfully. We told them about this issue about equal risk of infection. They told us when they locked us down. You know what? We need to lock you down because everybody's at equal risk of severe outcome. That was a bogus lie. How could Johnny at 10 have the same risk profile as Granny at 85 with two underlying medical conditions? That was a lie. We were never at equal risk of outcome. 
there was a 1,000-fold difference in risk of mortality between an 85-year-old and a 10-year-old. And they knew the data, but they didn't care. They kept locking down more and hardening the lockdowns. There was a lie about no available treatment. That was probably one of the worst lies ever because we knew that there was early treatment. We knew that we had antivirals and corticosteroids and antiplatelets that sequenced and combined. You could treat granny and you could keep granny in the elderly home, keep her in a private home because once she touched the emergency room door, her 28-day mortality went up 40%. But they lied and they prevented the doctors from treating people. Thousands of people in Canada died because they were not provided treatment that was available. Thousands of people died in the United States. Of the 900,000 who died from COVID, we've modeled it recently, McCullough, Reich, etc. We've shown that 850,000 will be alive today. This will go down as one of the greatest, greatest blunders and blemishes. And, and actually, I don't know, doctors in Canada should hang their heads in shame. Scientists, they should hang their heads as well. It's not, only, it's not only what the government's done here. It's not what Trudeau said or Ford said. These doctors should have exercised their clinical judgment and their own decision-making and treat your patient. It is your patient. And you knew, you knew that these drugs were. You knew these drugs were effective in keeping people alive. And I guess I've written that seminal paper with the 150 studies now, it's courts around the world use it, on natural immunity. That actually is my paper. And what we looked at is we brought together about 150 studies to show that it is a bogus lie that vaccinal immunity is superior to natural immunity. Mm -hmm. And this has been one of the greatest lies perpetrated on the Canadian population and the American and UK and global population. There is no condition under which vaccine immunity could supersede natural immunity. And I want to end quickly, just to show a couple of slides. I mean, there are so many things that I wanted to talk about. But why we are here? We are here because, forget the other slides, let's focus on this one. We are here because of these vaccine mandates. And people like Brittle, Hodkinson, myself, Dr. Poness, Dr. Braden. We knew that these truckers were using their gut instinct here, but they also their common sense. They're actually smarter than the government public health officials. Yeah. And, <laughs> we decided we're going to put it on the line here again because we get attacked in the media, smeared and slandered. But we know that 100% of the science, 100%, uh, is behind the trucker. So we decided we are going to join the trucker. We're not involved in the collecting of the money. We're not involved in the legal side of this. None of that. We are just the scientists. When they need us, they tap us. We will come, we will talk. 100% of the science is behind the trucker. And I need people to understand that. It might have been common sense to them, but they're actually on the scientific right side. And this is Scottish data. This is an example of what we're dealing with with these vaccines. We underestimated the capacity of the virus to evolve and adapt to the immune pressure that we place on it when you introduce a suboptimal vaccine. These vaccines are suboptimal in the sense that 
they do not cut the chain of transmission. And because of that, if you are introduced a vaccine, if you mass vaccinate, and you, with, with ongoing infectious pressure, we are in the midst of a pandemic, with suboptimal mountain immune pressure, you are going to drive natural selection to play a role and drive the emergence of variants, as we have seen with Delta, Omicron, etc. If you want this pandemic to continue for 100 more years with more variants and a potentially lethal one, thank God, so far it's just infectious with Omicron, but if you want to continue this way, let's continue this vaccine program because this vaccine program has failed and the truckers are correct. There is no need for mandate, none, because there is no difference today between a vaccinated person and an unvaccinated person. And we have the data, and I will show you just one slide. This is Scotland. <laughs> this is the unvaccinated, this column. This is one dose. This is two dose, double dose, and this is booster. What does this slide show you in terms of infection after vaccination? Well, it shows you, if you look at the double dosing, the lowest risk of infection after vaccination, well, in the unvaccinated population has the lowest risk of infection. Mm. It's not, it is the unvaccinated person. The infection risk increases as you get increased dosing. And the double dose is the worst situation. And we see it in hospitalization. What we are seeing is the vaccinated person is getting massively infected harboring massive loads of virus and is transmitting the virus. It is not the unvaccinated. And the vaccinated person is also ending up in hospital today. So we have a serious problem with these vaccines. The vaccines do not work. The vaccine has failed on Omicron, period. There is no data now showing effectiveness of these vaccines. And they're not properly safe because they were not studied for the duration of time. So I will end by saying, it is time for the federal government of Canada to fire everybody in their task force. It is time that Doug Ford fires entire science table. They're inept, they're incompetent, all of them, all. Fire them. Be willing to open up the table and broaden it to people like Dr. Brittle. He's probably the top immunologist, virologist in the world. Dr. Gert van den Bosch, I work with him daily. Dr. Mike Heaton, I work with these guys here, Dr. Roger Atkinson. I work with Dr. Robert Malone. Call me, call any of us, bring us to the table. We're gonna broaden it for you and we're gonna bring the science. These people have never been contemporary with the science. COVID is over. It is time to declare the pandemic emergency over, lift the emergency, and allow these truckers to exercise the ability to work in Canada and to cross the border, because they are absolutely correct. There's no difference between a vaccinated and an unvaccinated, and you are denying them their dignity, their humanity, and their ability to earn a living. And that's how I learned today. <laughs> Alexander, everybody. And, and remember, we'll, 
we'll be taking questions afterwards, so please um, do not fear. You'll have a chance to ask some questions of him. So next, I would like to welcome Dr. Roger Hodkinson to say words um, quickly. <laughs> well, of course, I'll ignore that. <laughs> um, I will try and keep my comments brief um, because Dr. Alexander has done an incredible job covering the waterfront. Um, allow me to um, introduce uh, some of my credentials, um, which um, doesn't sit well with the people that are uh, introducing these draconian restrictions. Um, <clears throat> I've done just about everything um, in organized medicine as a pathologist. I run labs big and small. I'm the chairman of an American biotechnology company doing DNA sequencing. I'm a graduate of Cambridge in the UK. Um, came to Canada in 1970 when it was a very different country than it is the, the, the one it is today. I've, um, I've been elected by my peers as president of our provincial association of pathologists. I've been chairman of the national examining board for the examination in pathology. And, and so on and so on. But I'm most proud of having spent 20 years in the trenches of public health, earning my spurs, you might say, in the school of hard knocks um, by taking on big tobacco. And over 20 years, I'm very, very proud of that, that, um, that part of my career, saving more lives, I believe, in that than I ever did as a workaday pathologist. I'm not an anti-vaxxer, I take vaccines. I don't encourage everyone to take vaccines, especially my age group, the pneumococcal vaccine, for example. I'm, uh, I don't believe in 5G, graphene oxide, genocide. I'm a mainstream, evidence-based guy. I can smell something that's fishy a mile away. And that's how I've run my entire career, strictly evidence-based physician. So having, having spent my life in organized medicine doing all that good stuff, um, I'm incensed at what's going on today. I'm totally incensed. And I've been told by people running this show that I should not use expletives that I frequently do. Uh, I'll try and avoid that. But I, my anger is visceral because I am a physician. And every life matters for a physician. The population get bamboozled with numbers, with zeros and percentages, and certainly the, the people running the show don't seem to be in touch with the reality that what each one of those numbers comprising the big statistics represent. Any child that dies is a child that is as close to someone as you are to your family. That's being replicated so many times across the world and not registering with these people who've never practiced medicine. They've never sat down with the patient to talk about their condition in a, in a confidential fashion. Having said all of that, <clears throat> as Dr. Alexander said, this is the trucker's show. Thank God for the truckers. We are merely the supporting cast for the truckers. 
to give them and you comfort that your gut feelings, your common sense is absolutely right on the mark. That's why we're here. Now, as, as Dr. Alexander said, um, the history of this um, madness is, is, is quite interesting, and I'll, I'll briefly go over that so you can understand the big picture of how we got here and why we're still here and how we can get out of this mess. Fauci, the most vile man walking. Fauci led a, a contract for gain-of-function research in Wuhan because he couldn't get anyone to do it anywhere else because it was prohibited. So it was secretly done in Wuhan. It was never intended to be released. This was not genocide. But it did get out for a very simple reason. Having run big labs, I can tell you, you can never hermetically seal them for a very simple reason, that people work in there. So it, they are inherently unsafe. And that lab was known to be unsafe by State Department communiques. The French built it. Everyone knew it was an unsafe laboratory. He did it there anyway. Gain of function is the maddest thing that's going on in medicine right now. Gain of function is based upon the bizarre concept that if you make a virus intentionally more dangerous, more infectious, etc., and you study that, what happens with that in animals, that somehow you can devise better treatments. It's so incredibly stupid and crazy and dangerous, worse than the threat of nuclear war. Because it's not rocket science, as Dr. Bridal will acknowledge. It can be done anywhere. And the next one could make COVID look like a walk in the park if it's done with malicious intent, which this was not. So we got out of that lab accidentally on a pair of dirty shoes. It got on a plane to Milan, where there's the, Europe's highest concentration of elderly people and also a very high concentration of Chinese workers feeding the needs of the Italian leather industry. It was a perfect storm. Milanese started dying like flies. That got on the radar of Neil Ferguson, um, a theoretical physicist, by the way, not a shred of medical training. Um, notorious for his prior um, determinations that Armageddon was coming, you know, times three or four, and of course it never did. It's a little bit like climate change, you know. Yeah. It never happens. <laughs> um, but anyway, he, he, uh, he figured out with all his computer modeling that Armageddon was coming yet again. And um, that hit the press, and it was on the desk of every premier and president the very next morning. That produced panic. And they would have all said to their number two, listen, I want to plan on my desk tomorrow morning. Read my lips. I don't care what the, what, expletive deleted. I, I don't care what's in it. I've got to be shown to be doing something, even though it doesn't work. And that's exactly what happened. None of these measures were known to work, and that they did it anyway. Because I'm a politician. I'm here to save you from every life risk, from birth to your grave, and I take that very seriously, so make it so. So they introduced all these things, and of course, with, as we know, none of them worked, and I'll go through them briefly one by one. Masks, as Dr. Alexander said, ample evidence in the literature. To put it in the vernacular, you cannot stop a mosquito with a chain-link fence. It's absurd. You might have heard me say that. Social distancing. This condition is spread by aerosols, not by droplets. 
So it can be in the aisle of Walmart that there's no one else in and you're still going to get it. Social distancing makes no sense whatsoever. The six foot rule, etc. I used to think that was just a thing that happened at, uh, at camps for our kids. Um, <laughs> hand hygiene, by the same token, is spread by, by an aerosol. So forget about this theater of, of you know, antiseptics everywhere. I mean, it just makes your hands raw. It, it's, it's absurd. Travel bans, for the same token, there's been no documented spread of anything uh, of, of COVID, no outbreaks um, because, of, because of people traveling by, by airplane. But more than anything, lockdowns. Lockdowns had never been tried in the history of medicine as a way of coping with this type of problem. There was no evidence for them working or not, but intuitively, from a scientific perspective, it could be predicted not to work for a variety, a variety of reasons. And as Dr. Alexander has stated, it has created the most incredible carnage across the world. Everyone has been affected by lockdowns and vaccinations, from the smallest village in India to here in Ottawa. The, the, the problem with, with that is um, it, it, the, the, the carnage um, is, is random, it's poorly documented, but it's both physical, it's mental and psychological, and it's also economic. It's affected every single person on earth for a situation that is basically nothing more than a bad seasonal flu. Yes, some variations, obviously. But if this problem had been handled in the usual way, like we've done with other pandemics, viral pandemics, and simply done nothing, as the Great Barrington Declaration eloquently said, simply do nothing but accommodate to it in practical ways, common sense that you've all got lots of. This would have been over within six months. There would have been no emergence of continual variants that were forced into existence by this very ill-conceived vaccination program. So the, those, those consequences were gigantic, and Dr. Alexander's mentioned the, the tragedy of children hanging themselves because of social isolation, having been locked up in their little tiny bedroom for such a long period of time. So the bottom line of all of that is nothing worked. Nothing could work, nothing did work, and nothing therefore will work. There is no point in repeating the same thing that's failed over and over and over again and expecting the outcome to be different. Someone very famous said that. The vaccines were introduced with great fanfare, but you must remember the whole thing is predicated on the initial declaration of a public health emergency. It never ever was. It's been stated emphatically by people that wrote the, the manuals, the policies, the legislation that surround public health emergencies, that this wasn't close to a public health emergency. Once that was announced, it gave them the latitude to introduce all these agents under emergency use authorization, and in particular the vaccine. So here we have the small man syndrome, Fauci, a guy who'd never succeeded really in, to achieve glory. His HIV vaccine failed. We have a man looking for glory, speaking to a narcissist, Donald Trump. I'm a Trumper, by the way, full declaration. <laughs> but he was dead wrong on everything to do with, with, with COVID. 
They fed him a pack of lies, as Dr. Alexander saw on a regular basis. And he wanted glory too, so that was an easy sell. This vaccine was brought in um, with warp speed um, because the, the actual mechanism of delivery had already been worked out over a, a decade. All they had to do was package these little particles with the, the right um, mRNA in order to create this very experimental, experimental new product. You've got, to be, you've got to understand that vaccines, normal vaccines, without even this brand new technology, take a five to ten year time to come to market. That's a long time. And we do clinical trials in medicine for a very simple reason. We don't know what we don't know. We're looking for unexpected things. And, well, guess what? Unexpected things did start happening. The VAERS report in the States is full of it. In Canada, he doesn't want to know. TAM doesn't want to know. No province wants to know. There is no method of reporting that's efficient and comprehensive. They should be surveilling everything without volunteer, voluntary re reporting, that, but they're not doing that. So the vaccine was introduced. It's an experimental vaccine. It wasn't tested. And the use of it resulted in a great number of deaths and complications, but it didn't work to do its purpose in any way. So it's experimental, it's untested, it, and it isn't working, and it's causing death. It should be stopped now. As I am talking to you now, Pregnant women and children are being injected with this experimental product with no safety record whatsoever. The most protected sector of society is pregnant women. I'll say a word, just one word, that might cause pause for politicians. And the word is thalidomide. Thalidomide brought to market by Big Pharma, and produce children without arms and legs. Does anyone out there, Tam and co, do you remember thalidomide? This could happen all over again, because we just don't know. The studies have not been done. And similarly with children, we know from Dr. Bridal's um, um, brilliant exposure of the Pfizer um, uh, documentation when they presented it to the Japanese authorities that the, this, this delivery mechanism for the vaccine selectively targets the ovaries of rats. Don't you think if we know that it's selectively attacking the ovaries of rats that just maybe we should know what's happening to little girls because little girls are born with all the eggs they're ever going to have in their entire life. That could be important, could it not? But it's being ignored. I can't tell you how, how annoyed I am at this as a physician. It's totally different from everything that happened in, in my education and, and the life that I've lived in medicine. We got to this situation basically, basically by the imposition of three methods that by which you can break even the most hardened terrorist in Guantanamo Bay. And they applied that knowledge to society at large. And the three methods are this. 
First of all, you drive fear. And you keep it on. Fear, driven by the morning graph in the paper, the PCR graph, with so-called cases. No, no such thing. In clinical medicine, a case is someone who is sick in front of you. It's not a laboratory result. There's got to be a symptom associated with it. And the vast majority of these cases, 97% or so, were false positives. And yet that's what drove fear. That's what drove contact tracing. That's what destroyed restaurants. How can you operate a restaurant if, you know, one day, you know, yes, no, yes, no, and all that, but okay, finally we can open, you know, but then, then the chef is found to be positive for COVID. And you've got to shut this, the restaurant down again. You've already supplied the place with all the, the produce. And you've got to shut it down again. These restaurateurs have been just dangled like that. Amazing, for two years. And thousands of them have closed. That's fear. Ignorance. And this is perhaps the biggest one. If I had to put one finger, actually a fist if I had the chance. <laughs> Organized medicine, the bodies that regulators, the colleges of physicians and surgeons across, across Canada and the world, are the singular reason we're here today in this room. Because they have specifically intimidated physicians into silence. They have told physicians, you will not treat people with ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And if you do, we're coming after you and you're going to lose your livelihood. Have I got your attention yet? But they've gone further than that. They're attacking any physician that spreads, in their words, misinformation. This is like the gulag in Russia all over again. Doctors not allowed to talk to their patients, which we've been doing for hundreds of years, privately in the examining room. How can you be informed? How can there be informed consent if you're not informed? I mean, it's so bloody basic. And it's fundamental medicine. It's one of the two major ethics. First, do no harm, which obviously mandates are doing, and informed consent. Central tenets of medicine. Government is now your doctor. We are not allowed to talk to you. We're not allowed to open our mouths. The registrar in my own province, province said, and be careful what you say to your neighbors. Yeah. Attempting to muzzle physicians, and they did it very, very efficiently. That drove, that drove ignorance. And then isolation, otherwise known as quarantine. Keep people separated. Don't let them talk to each other. You break anyone with those three methods and it broke society and it was absolutely magnificent in its outcome for them. Early treatment, we've talked about hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, meta-analysis of ivermectin, Tesslori has shown dramatically that ivermectin works. It's, it's a closed book, it works. We're still not being allowed to use it today. So what happens when you go to the emergency department with a cough and a sore throat and a fever, and you think you might have COVID. 
they do a test, which in that circumstance, if it's done at a low cycle threshold, if it's positive, you probably do have COVID. Then they get out the oxygen meter, the, ox the oximeter. And if your oxygen level isn't low enough, they say, go home. You're not admitted. Go home, subtext, medically. Come back when you're blue. Much more difficult to treat. Instead of sending people home with a prescription of ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, vitamin D, etc. Older people in nursing homes should have been given a daily dose of vitamin D. It's known to be incredibly effective. And by the way, spread this news too, would you? Although ivermectin is an effective prophylactic, there's a much better one that you can pick up at the pharmacy today with no prescription because dentists and ENT surgeons have been using it all the time. It's called tincture of iodine. You buy a bottle of betadine, you dilute it 10 to 1, you put four drops in each nostril while you're lying down, you'll feel it trickling back in the back of your throat. This is not quackery. It works. Do it. Cheap, effective, safe. Um, uh, you buy a bottle of betadine from the pharmacy. Betadine, it's, a, it's povidone iodine. You then dilute it 10 to 1 with a dropper, nine drops from an eyedropper. Nine drops of iodine to one drop of water. Uh, the other way around. Nine, <laughs> nine, nine drops, I'm a scientist, right? Um, nine, nine drops of water to one drop of, of iodine. You mix it up and then you take the dropper and you put four drops in each nostril twice a day. You find it trickling back in your throat. It tastes a bit funny. You could even gargle with it if you wish. That's what McCullough is recommending. Uh, rock solid science. Rock solid science. And hydrogen peroxide, similarly. Um, I'm not done. <laughs> if you push me off the stage, I'll start swearing. Kids. Kids have been the most brutalized sector in this whole mad episode in human history. Children have been isolated. They've been forced to wear masks. They've been denied learning about nonverbal communication, smiles. They've been made suspicious of human contact. They've been denied food and testing of various types. Step one. Step two, they now want to vaccinate them unnecessarily with an agent that can kill them or maim them for life. Step three, for the rest of their lives, they'll be paying for it economically with a reduced standard of living due to any of the traditional causes. There'll be reduced funding for, for education, for, for health care. Taxes will go up. Net result, reduced standard of living for the rest of their lives for children who've been psychologically traumatized. It's indescribably despicable. Yeah. Yeah. And I call it state-sanctioned sacrifice of our children. Our children, our most precious asset, are being sacrificed on the high altar of these gods, these new gods, assuming that that's going to move the needle. It, it won't help granny in the nursing home. All it will do is kill kids. And that has to stop. So I'll, I'll close 
No. <laughs> I'll close with a, a plea to return to a time that I call B.C. Before COVID. Remember that time when you hugged your grandchildren, when you went to funerals, when your children were getting a proper education, when you could hold the hand of your dying relative. Some of those most despicable things that happened. So, folks, it's over. The battle is over. The war is yet to start. Because woke, wokeism that's got us here is in the C-suites of multinationals. It's in our judges' minds. It's in too many physicians' minds. It's in the, it's in the, the, the governance of universities. Wokeism has to be killed. Because if wokeism is not killed, winning this battle here will simply see it recurring in another guise, like climate change, lockdown, or whatever. So I, I thank you for your attention. You just have to know one thing. It's over. We're really good friends, just so you know. So he was being, yeah. Thank you very much, Dr. Hodkinson. And, and uh, our final speaker, uh, Dr. Byron Bridal, now will, will be uh, giving us a presentation. And then following that, we'll have questions. So thank you very much. Hello, everybody. It's a real pleasure to be here today. Uh, and coming after these uh, previous two speakers, it's like standing on the shoulders of giants. And I really don't have to add a whole lot more. Uh, they've, they've said it all. Uh, there's lots that I could talk about. I could talk for hours and hours, and I, I'm certainly not. Uh, I, I, as you know, my historical messaging is often focused on children, and my concern about the lack of safety testing and safety concerns that I have for children. I'm not going to talk about that today either. As was pointed out, as scientists, we're being starved, starved by our public health officials of the data that's needed to definitively make those arguments. Uh, unfortunately, I, I can tell you that I've been contacted by hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of people now who may have been genuinely vaccine injured and they're finding themselves lost. They followed the narrative and now those who push the narrative have abandoned them. They're also being abandoned by a lot who, who didn't follow the narrative, unfortunately. We, we, have to, we have to be more open-minded, right? They're often being attacked and you know, being told they, they're getting what they deserve yeah. for, for following people they should have been able to follow. So I, I'm not going to touch on any of that. I'm going to touch down on a few things because I want to back up the truckers. And you know, I, I understand. I, I'm a scientist. I spent two years, and I spent a lot of time during those two years, especially in the first you know, just over a year, I spent a lot of time waking up. Uh, every day wondering, am I wrong? Am I the one that's wrong, right? We're all getting pummeled with this messaging. We're all being told that we're wrong. We're being told that we provide misinformation, possibly disinformation, which means we're knowingly providing misinformation. Uh, we're being told that we don't know what we're talking about, that we're not real experts. But a real, a real scientist and a real physician, should, we should be questioning ourselves all the time, and we're open to questioning ourselves. So I'm just going to touch down on a few things that I hope will help all of you stop question yourselves and know that you can be confident in the stance that you have. And I can't reiterate enough. We, we, the truckers here, we really need you to stay on the line for everybody. And especially, I can't emphasize enough, all of, the, all of our health professionals, I don't think people understand, the, the public does not know because the mainstream media is not carrying it, but our public health officials, are, are, sorry, our, our great physicians, the few physicians who are willing to stand up 
and, and be physicians and do what they're supposed to be doing, they're being crushed. Their li livelihoods are being taken away from them. They're being isolated. It's a classical uh, divide and conquer strategy. I, they are my friends. I've become friends with many of them. And I'll tell you, through the Canadian COVID Care Alliance, one of the reasons why that place exists is so that physicians and scientists can actually talk openly. You know what? We're actually allowed to disagree with one another as well. And we don't get attacked. And everybody's accepted. But I'm just telling you, within that organization, one of the places is supposed to be a safe haven. I don't know if you saw, but the Canadian COVID Care Alliance has been pummeled by the mainstream media with hit pieces. And people don't realize that our physicians, they have been people, they, these uh, organizations, licensing body, bodies across Canada, they have been invading their offices at no notice. Multiple people invading their offices, raiding their files, raiding their computers. These are witch hunts, and they, this is to end their jobs. And so truckers, for those people, and for our children, and for our university students, and everybody else, we really need you to, to hold the line. Now that's just, no, so what I want to get to is the, the few things that I wanted to talk about. So, first of all, you know, who is Dr. Bridal? So, I was just, you know, from one of the small cities in Guelph, or in, in Canada, Guelph, Ontario, a university there. Uh, I, I honestly, I haven't done anything special. I've just done my job. I'm a public servant. Taxpayers pay for the vast majority of my salary. You also cover most of the operating expenses for the institution at which I work. And part of my job as a faculty member is to answer questions the public has when they ask me and when they're within the realm of my expertise and to do so to the best of my abilities. And that's all I've been doing from the beginning. And I'd like to emphasize, uh, a lot of people don't realize, I, I've been speaking up about this, and I've been expressing concerns for two years now. A lot of people don't realize, I, I was interviewed by W5. I was interviewed on the West Block. I was interviewed by Global News. I was interviewed by CBC National News. They were coming to me. They wanted to hear my opinion. Now, none of them will talk to me ever. I haven't changed. They're the ones that changed. The world has been flipped upside down. All I've been doing is the job that I've been asked to do and that you as taxpayers pay me to do from the very beginning. But I'll tell you, I was hoping that, the, that you know, maybe some mainstream media would be here. Uh, first, before I even tell you a little bit about myself, I want to say something. This is, this, I am, I, this is horrible. The, th the fact that these three individuals didn't show up, and just so you understand, so we're talking about the two people in charge of public health, the Public Health Agency of Canada, and Dr. Shelley Deeks is the chair of our National Advisory Committee on Immunization. So her committee is the one that has been promoting all of these vaccine mandates and all the rules related to the vaccine mandates. And I tried to having discussions with them early on with all the concerns that I had about the vaccines. They refused to communicate with me. It started off when I started raising issues about this one-dose summer and Canada going to a four-month interval and where was the science. In response to a letter that myself and, and colleagues had put to them, they published a paper so that they could say they had a peer-reviewed paper. It came from the University of Toronto Press. It's a medical journal that nobody else in the world has ever heard of. It's not listed on any major uh, you know, journal sites, any of these places you'd go to look for uh, relevant peer-reviewed science. When they published it, they published the results of a classical epidemiological model. And guess what? The epidemi epidemiological model and methodology was not published. They said it would be in the future. It still hasn't. There is no way I've never, ever been able to publish a scientific paper without showing the methods that I'm using to generate my data. And she won't be here today. These people haven't shown up. I'm a professional. They're professionals. They need to realize this is actually their job. This is actually, you're paying them to represent and, and, and be able to uh, tell you how hard the reality is, it's, it's not actually technically my job to be here right now. I, I'm a professor. 
I, I, and I've been doing that, and I'll tell you, to be a professor in this day and age in the academic environment that we have now is more than a full-time job. Right. All right? And I'm doing that full-time job to the best of my ability while I also do this. I came here, I was here two weeks ago, and I invited Dr. Tam to come and to a, a scientific discussion. So I, I drove six hours yesterday from Guelph to come back here and talk to them. I was, I was told they were going to, you know, they were invited. I came back here to do my duty, you know, as, as a public servant. The reality is I'm still functioning as a professor. I'm proud of it. My research team, just so you know, has published over 30 papers, peer-reviewed scientific papers, over the past two years during this pandemic. I've been doing my job while also trying to advocate for and they don't have the right, they don't have the, they didn't even have the, they, they, they wouldn't even respond to us. We didn't even receive the, uh, the, the respect of even being responded to. Wow. The, 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 the attitude that, that our public health officials have and the leaders, the, the power brokers when it comes to public health, uh, this, is, this is disgusting. We wouldn't accept this from elementary school children, this kind of behavior yeah, that we're seeing. And, 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 I, yeah, I don't, and that's exactly it. And that's, what I want, and that's exactly where I want to get to. So thanks for that. Where, where's their evidence? That's why we wanted them to come here today. Okay, so I want Canadians to look. Yeah, you don't have a lot of the mainstream media here. Um, even there, I'm not even going to refer to this as the peripheral media anymore. I call it the truthful, honest media. Media with integrity. Yeah. And I, this has to get out to many people. Because I'm sorry, this goes back to like the Roman times. If you've got two groups of people and one group keeps putting their champions in the arena, in the gladiator, gladiator arena, over and over and over again, and the other side refuses to, over and over and over again, you have to start asking the question, how good are your champions? What do they, what do they actually have? Why aren't they stepping in the arena? Why? All those that you, you want to attack us and you want to push this narrative, you want to say we're wrong, where are your champions to back you up? Exactly. You don't, yeah, exactly. You don't have them, and this is frustrating. This is frustrating for me as a scientist, okay? Because what you need to understand is, and, 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 and this is coming from the top down, from our, our like our prime minister. I'm sorry, it's an embarrassment. I, I don't want I don't want our children acting like our prime minister. And I, I, I want to tell you something. So I was uh, one of the things I saw last night. Thank you. One of the things that I saw last night was a uh, I saw the video for the first time. And it was the uh, uh, Quebec correspondent for Rebel News. And I, I saw a video. I hadn't seen it before. It was uh, their interaction with her prime minister in the French portion of the debate. And I had seen what happened with the English uh, language version. And I saw that the courts had ruled that they were legitimate uh, media relations people to be there. And he refused to answer their questions. Uh, I, I couldn't believe it that after that, and, and then the next day, um, with all that was happening, um, continuing to take that stance and completely ignore them and not answer the questions, despite the fact that our legal system said that they have the right to be there. We have the right to ask these questions of these individuals. That's the whole point, as the Canadian public has the right to have these questions asked. And people have to start wondering, why are these leaders, including our Prime Minister, ignoring these questions, refusing to answer these questions. I'm here today, I drove from Guelph. I'm putting myself on the line. Wait, wait, wait. Let's face it, if you would use the analogy of somebody stepping into a gladiator arena, you've got no guarantee of winning uh, necessarily. You might get pummeled, right? You might get pummeled. I'm putting myself, we're putting ourselves on the line here. We, we are confident with the science. But the reality is, guess what? If we're as wrong as they say they are, they can come here and they can pummel us. And guess what? I'll be deplatformed. After two years of having a platform, I'll be deplatformed. But they don't show up. That tells you a lot. Yep. All right? And so what I want to do, I want to show you something. 
Uh, and, and again, I just brought this here in case people want to know they have the credentials. So I'm a viral immunologist at the University of Guelph, associate professor. I teach about this. It's ridiculous that things like vitamin D were, were declared to be uh, fake science here in Canada. I've been te teaching, I teach my, I've been teaching my students for years. It's a fundamental component of the immune system. Of course, you should make sure that your vitamin D levels are proper. You're going to be prone to all kinds of infectious diseases. It's ridiculous, this kind of stuff. Um, I, I, I have... So I, I specialize in vaccinology. So I just want to say something really quickly to make sure we all understand this, okay? Because people keep saying, and, and you've probably heard this argument yourselves from those who keep pushing the narrative. <laughs> well, we've mandated all kinds of vaccines, so what's your problem now? These inoculations look nothing like any vaccine that we have ever mandated. So what people need to understand, the very definition of a vaccine was altered to accommodate these inoculations yeah, that we're putting yeah, to yeah. people right now, okay? And the very, they would never have been categorized as a vaccine. I can tell you, I hold patents in the area of vaccines. These would never be patented as vaccines more than two years ago. It would not follow through on patent law, okay? And the whole purpose of a vaccine, the historical purpose of a vaccine was to prevent transmission. These are failing miserably. Uh, and in fact, I would go further than what uh, Dr. Alexander said. Uh, he's kind of uh, nice about the, how he summarized the data ultimately. I would say the best case scenario right now is that these vaccines are completely irrelevant in the context of the Omicron variant. And that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is they are actually causing harm. And I'm not talking about the safety of the vaccines now. That's what I mean. That's why I'm not even going to talk about my safety concerns. We don't need to anymore. When it comes to actual infection, we're seeing that these vaccines are actually making people who are vaccinated more prone to infection with Omicron. And we're seeing that they're potentially getting worse disease. All right, we might be looking at vaccine-enhanced disease when we're looking at things like the Scotland data and the data coming out of uh, Israel where they've gone to the fourth dose and we're now starting to see for the first time a possible recoupling of deaths with cases because of these vaccines. And in terms of when this was over, starting uh, March of 2021, there was a complete disconnect between deaths and cases at that point. And if this ever was truly a pandemic, and I would say this was never a problem of pandemic proportions, had we let our physicians actually exercise their ability to look after patients, no, then, then... Common sense. Exactly. Yes. That's right. And this would... this so, But even if it was, it was over March 2021. That's what we saw, this disconnect between cases and deaths. So, and the other thing is, I, I brought up uh, with some of my colleagues... We brought up our concerns with Health Canada when they declared they were going to use the AstraZeneca vaccine. We said, look, there are all kinds of uh, countries in Europe that have concerns about potential, uh, you know, serious blood clots occurring with the AstraZeneca vaccine. We were laughed off at that time, but several months later, guess what? Canada shut down the AstraZeneca program. I, I was attacked uh, incessantly when I raised my concerns about the, the biodistribution issues with these uh, inoculations and potential safety issues, especially as they might apply to cardiovascular issues, as you heard, especially heart inflammation in young males. And I continue to be attacked by that. And everybody who attacked me, not one person has stepped up and apologized, despite the fact that every label now for all the vaccines includes, recognizes that myocarditis, it's no longer a question of is it an issue for people. It, the, the debate right now is how much of an issue. But it is a side effect. It is an accepted side effect to the point where, again, in Ontario, we won't allow uh, young males under 30 to take the, the Moderna vaccine anymore. 
So, and people have often asked me, I get flooded. I get flooded with emails after these kind of announcements came in. We were saying something about this three months ago. How did you know? How did you know? Because I'm a scientist. I look at the data. I actually follow the science. And when you follow the science, you can see where it's going to lead. So I've done this over and over. So I'm not going to talk about my qualifications anymore, but just know that I, I have been able to f accurately follow the science and predict what's coming up. Now, getting back to this issue, because I thought, how are we going to deal with this today? Because I expected that these three individuals would not show up uh, once again. And, and people do not honor this, this uh, age-old uh, concept of open academic discussion anymore. So I thought, you know, how can we, find, how do we, can we get to this? So I, I have a way to show, to show you what the science looks like. We don't have these individuals here. I'm, I'm quite personally quite confident that I would be able to demonstrate to you and these others would be able to demonstrate to you that they don't, don't have the deep understanding of the relevant areas of science needed, especially to be pushing vaccine mandates. But so how do we prove that? Because they're not here. So I'll tell you, the one place, the only place, and I, I've issued in, invitations to thousands, thousands of people, thousands of scientists, thousands of physicians. Some of you may have heard of Steve Kirsch. I've got lots of friends now, new friends in the United States. He's put up offers up to $2 million to debate people about the science. I'm one of the people on his list that he can call up for those debates. I'm ready to go at a moment's notice. As you've seen, I, I, I can talk, I talk off the cuff. This is the thing, you, and so I'll answer any questions you have here. I showed up today, I'm not afraid of any questions. Right? And if I'm wrong on something and somebody can prove me wrong, I'll accept that. I'm a scientist who follows the science. I don't care about, I'm not afraid of any question. And the other point is, I, I, don't have, I can speak off the cuff. I don't need to have uh, anything scripted because the thing I have to keep pointing out is I don't need to remember what I said previously. Right? The truth never contradicts itself. And that's the point that I always have to make. So I'm going to show you something here. So the one place, the only place that we've ever found, even with $2 million on the table, we haven't been able to get anybody to talk about the science with us. The one place they cannot escape from us, and this is what I want to share with you, they cannot escape from us in court. And I have been in several court hearings now, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with experts on the other side. They have to, because if any decision is ever going to be made based on the evidence, and they don't show up with evidence, guess what? <laughs> it's a no contest. If one side has the evidence and the other side has no evidence, if they, again, I, I want to reiterate this, if the decision is to be made based on the weight of the evidence, it's going to be a no contest. So they have to show up with their evidence. I was at one recently, you heard about the science table, who dictates in Ontario, and it's relevant because we're here in Ottawa and Ontario right now. They've been dictating uh, what our lockdown policy should look like in Ontario. I had the opportunity to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Dr. Peter Uni. Okay, He's the head of our science advisory table. Uh, many people are pushing this narrative, consider him a scientific god because of the position that he's been given, all right? Now, I want to tell you, so I faced him in court, all right? And he had the opportunity. I, it was a short notice. I put together my scientific report. He had the opportunity of first reading my scientific report and responding to it and being able to rebut anything that I said. I was then not given the right of response to him. I wrote a response uh, document, but it was not accepted in the court. But, so, I want to show something. So this is, this is the first So now we have hard evidence. Here's the, the head of the scientific table in Ontario pushing the policies here, okay? I'm going to show you with your own eyes. This is my report that I put forward to the court, okay? And it has hundreds, hundreds of peer-reviewed scientific documents in here, okay? So there's, I, I can't remember, 244 pages of written text, and then the rest is all scientific data to back it up, all right? Now, I had submitted that first. Dr. Peter Uni had the opportunity to read my document and respond to it. I'm, okay, this is his science that he put forward. Wow. All right, I, I, I'm serious. Okay? Now, now honestly, now I, I, need to, I need to tell you something because this is sad. 
And this has been consistently now my, I, I have only been in three court cases, but out three out of three times, the other side is being absolutely pummeled when it comes to the science. Okay. read a couple things from this report. So first of all, I have to tell you, there were actually two experts brought against me. The other one, the report never even made it to be discussed in the court. It was uh, deemed absolutely libelous. 100% of what they had in the report were citations of fact checker sites, so-called fact checker sites. Oh. I refuted every one. And just so that you know, Peter Uni came with the same approach using fact checker sites. Uh, this was discussed in court, and I want you to know, I want all those to know that these people who keep citing, and he cited over and over again his reports from his own science advisory table. So I want you to know, in court, that's considered hearsay evidence, because it's not demonstrating you actually understand the science, and it's not relying on peer-reviewed articles. Wow. All right. And the other thing I want you to know is these fact-checker sites being quoted to take us down are being cited as potentially libelous in court. All right, in court, and so I, I just want you to know this: these are the this is the, what they're coming with. The, wow. the scientific head of our table is coming with uh, libelous, and of course, if uttered in court, potentially slanderous, uh, you know, evidence and and uh, you know, data from their own advisory tables. Anytime you cite, uh, people need to understand because every time you cite what Health Canada, the World Health Organization, their websites, the Ontario Science Table, these are nebulous. Uh, organizations. We don't know who that means. I mean, the reality is you have every, like, who? Who does that represent? Who are the scientists? How many of the scientists from Health Canada were actually responsible for what you're reading on the internet? What was the scientific basis? Where's the peer-reviewed data? What's the raw data they used to do it, right? Um, that, that's why we call hearsay evidence. We need the people here to demonstrate to Canadians that they actually understand the science, that they can converse. And the reason why it's important to be able to have Canadians see this go back and forth is because it's very easy to hide behind a keyboard and go and do your three weeks of research to try and find something, one document that you can possibly find to refute what somebody else is saying. When you have to go back and forth in real time, your weaknesses as a scientist become unveiled extremely quickly. And I think this is the real reason why this table is empty today. I want to point out because it's the first time, and 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 and, to, and this is legal. If anybody's wondering, <laughs> the lawyers and, and legal team gave permission. This is part. This is part of the public record. Once the case is over, uh, these reports that we've written again. I'm, I'm a public servant. We're public servants. These are part of the public record. You can uh, contact the court and request copies yourself. Okay. So, in in Dr. Uni's report, when he had the opportunity to rebut my report, I want to point out that he challenged nine statements that I had. Nine statements. He picked nine little phrases that I had in here to pick on. Now, of those nine statements that he tried, attempted to rebut, uh, what you need to know is uh, seven of the, for seven of these nine, he provided zero, like absolutely no scientific evidence, nothing. Not even citing a website, not even citing his own, um, his own uh, committee's documents. All right, and I want, to I want you to hear, hear this. Because for these seven of the nine rebuttals to me, this is what he does. All right, he talks about over and over, it's cut, cut and paste. Dr. Bridal claims, and then he puts in quotes a few words of mine. And this is what he says over and over again. So Dr. Bridal claims, insert what I said, I disagree. This statement is at odds with the international scientific consensus. I am not aware of any credible evidence that would support such a statement. And I kid you not, there are zero citations to go along with that. Zero citations. So, 
Obviously, if he says it, then it must be the gospel truth, right? <laughs> and and and, and, and there's a lot of laughing. But this is what's happening in our courts. This is our this is these are the experts presenting in court to justify what they're doing to all of you. Okay, that's why I need you to be aware of this. And over and over it goes again. Look at this. Dr. Bridal states, I disagree. This statement is at odds with the international scientific consensus. Once again, Dr. Bridal states, I disagree. This statement is at odds with the international scientific consensus. I am not aware of any credible evidence that would support such a statement. Dr. Bridal claims, I disagree. This claim is at odds with the international scientific consensus. Wow. Uh, here we go again. Dr. Bridal states, I disagree. This statement is at odds with the international scientific, you know, you can see Dr. Bridal concludes, I disagree. This statement is at odds with the international scientific consensus. Dr. Bridal states, this statement is at odds. And on, like, I'm telling you, so that's, that's the document. That's the document that was presented in court. Uh, it was pretty much laughed off in court. Um, and honestly, I have to tell you, I, I am, this is my area of expertise for sure. I'm a professor. If this is the worst piece of scientific writing that I've ever seen in my entire life. All right, and uh, you know, I, I teach a lot at the graduate level and senior undergraduate level, uh, but even if this was a first year undergraduate student who I would give a lot of leeway to for scientific writing, I would fail, this would get an F. Okay. So I just want to point that out, and, and just, a, so not just a couple things, I just want to cut, touch down a couple things and then we'll go to what, what your questions are. Now, so one, let me just pull up um, something here. I want to show. I want to show you a couple things. So, and, all right, because because again, I want to empower you here, and uh, okay, so hopefully, let me just pull this in. They're very very nervous. <laughs> okay, so. I, I, again, I, this is why we'll use their own data. The, the data that's most broadly accepted as being the most valid, as, as unbiased as I would argue that it is, right, is public health officials' own data. So that, as you can see, this is Public Health Ontario. And you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna refresh this. So you can see here, I uploaded this before coming. So February 11th, 1032. But let's refresh this, all right? So first of all, one of the things I want, to, I want you, you to note here, you see this due to technical difficulties, so this is Ontario public health data, uh, the case rate by vaccination status by age group is not available. That's been the case since well before Christmas. All right, so apparently our government can't figure out these technical difficulties for all this time. You know, I, I want you to note that. Uh, you start asking, what does that show? So, what do, okay, what are we going to jump to right now? This shows cases by vaccination status. So what I want to do, let's look at, through since we started vaccinating. So we're going to go to all time here. Now, because I want to point this out, it was argued that this was a pandemic of the unvaccinated. This is based on these lines back here, and the fact that the purple line, which represents the unvaccinated, was a little bit above the green line, which is the fully vaccinated. Now, what you have to understand are two things. The reason why this was a little bit higher. First of all, we're dealing with a time when there were very few cases, very few cases. So that you have to understand that background. So, so this really is quite meaningless. That curve is really quite <laughs> meaningless. Uh, throughout this whole time point. And then what you see here, this peak, this is with the huge Omicron wave that came through, right? Where most of Canada was vaccinated and it could do nothing to stop this wave. Now, the reason why this was overlay, uh, also uh, reversed is because remember this whole time, guess who's being tested? So we know, we, we know, you've heard the science. The vaccinated and unvaccinated can both get infected with Omicron, right? Mm -hmm. And they can both get sick. So if you look 
for an infection, predominantly in one population, guess what happens? You predominantly find it in one population. And we all know this is inherently true. Most of us, if you've been in workplaces, the, anybody who is not vaccinated hasn't been able to get an exemption. It's on the basis that they commit to regular testing all the time, right? And so if you're just testing, if you're primarily testing the unvaccinated, of course it looks like it's a pandemic primarily of the unvaccinated. So understand where that comes from, that science. So, but even understanding that that bias is there, look what happened when Omicron hit. There was a crossover on December 24th, Christmas Eve, mm -hmm. and look at what the, the green are the fully vaccinated. 30 to 40% with the Omicron wave, the fully vaccinated were 30 to 40% more likely to get infected with SARS-CoV-2 than the unvaccinated. This is what I mean. Uh, Dr. Alexander was being nice by claiming that maybe the vaccines are simply irrelevant now. We have growing evidence from our own data here in Canada and many other provinces as well that I could show you that the vaccines are actually making things worse. This might be vaccine-enhanced disease, but some kind of vaccine-enhanced infection. Worst case scenario as a scientist, I'm actually starting to get a little bit worried that have these vaccines actually started inducing some kind of immunological tolerance, tolerizing people against the, this pathogen. You know, but again, these are, we don't know exactly but their argument, this does not, as you can see, support the narrative. So what's going to happen now if we have a fourth wave in the future? What direction is this going to go? Is this going to get even worse for the unvaccinated? But my goodness, basic cost-benefit analysis. If you have somebody right now in the context of Omicron right now, which is predominantly circulating, and you want to reduce their chances of getting infected with SARS-CoV-2 so that they can't pass that along to the frail elderly, the immunosuppressed, et cetera, et cetera, all the high-risk individuals, you don't want them vaccinated. Yeah. Yeah. They're, the vac unvaccinated are the ones that have disproportionately fewer cases of COVID-19. So, that's right, this is Ontario's own data right here. Okay, you saw it, up to the minute data. Now, they also tell us that the ICUs and hospitals are overflowing with people and have been. So what I want to point out, I've been looking at this and consistently in terms of the ICU, about three quarters, again, since, uh, since Christmas Eve have been people who are vaccinated, all right? And that's almost on par. So again, the argument is, well, it's disproportionately still occurring among the unvaccinated because about 82% are vaccinated. Well, it's like splitting hairs because it depends on any given day, of course. This has been varying, but it's also it's almost the proportional in terms of the hospitalizations, according to this biased data. But look at this, even in the ICU, what they don't want you to know is, yeah, they, they try and make this argument that it's still disproportionately occurring among the unvaccinated because you gotta remember we're a much smaller population than the others. Uh, but the reality is the majority, right? A fairly substantial majority are the vaccinated here. And now this is what you have to understand because this is with Ontario's own biased data and what they've also released, but they will not overlay this data with what they have released. In other words, tell us how you break it down by vaccination status is they've admitted that almost 50% of everybody in hospital is not there because of COVID. They're there, and in fact, they, they have, they, they're even um, misleading you on this. They're not there with COVID. They keep making this argument. They're not there, you know, almost 50% aren't there because of COVID. Uh, they're there with COVID. No, More, almost 50% of people are there with a positive PCR test result. That's a very important distinction that they don't make, right? And so, but we don't know then, of those, how does this break down? Because maybe this proportion that are in there, in the hospital, but are there with a positive test result rather than because of COVID, you know, maybe this becomes an even tinier piece of the pie. So I want to point out, and the other thing that people keep forgetting about, this is the last argument they keep trying to make, is these vaccines, they might, they might dampen the, the severity of disease. Okay, if you think they might dampen the severity of disease, you know, 
you're welcome to that belief and you can take the vaccines. Don't make the rest of us take them because what you're arguing is, what we're trying to argue is, oh, but if you don't get the vaccine and then you end up in hospital or the ICU, that's a bed that's not available for somebody who's in there by no fault of their own. For example, a non-smoker who gets lung cancer. Now there's maybe not a bed available. Our beds have not been filled on one single day in Ontario for the past two years. Also, there has not been one single day throughout the entire two years of this declared pandemic in which the majority of people that have been in hospital have been there because of or with because of COVID or with a positive PCR test result. All right, so this capacity issue is not there. And all those people are trying to make that argument. I hope that they are non-smokers. I hope they don't drink. I hope they never speed for the rest of their lives. Because if they do anything that puts them at enhanced risk of getting to the hospital, then they are complete and utter hypocrites for trying to force other people to take this for some clearly nefarious benefit. That's not what vaccines are meant to do. And so the... And then the I, I'm going to end with this one because I think this is an important example. It highlights three important things. So the other thing I want to show you here, I actually had two colleagues who uh, I, I, I was very close to uh, from McMaster University. Uh, I've, I've published with one of them. Um, I've served on grant review panels for our, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research here in, in, in Ottawa um, uh, in, in the past. Um, but I'm sorry, I, I'm going to highlight this article. This is public. As scientists, we can debate the science in public. Um, they certainly won't talk to me in person. Um, but so th this, this is an article that was published in The Conversation. The Conversation is, uh, has, it invites articles for the lay, this is for lay people. So they invite articles designed for a lay audience to understand science. And they invite it from people, academics across our institutions, our universities across Canada, okay? I wrote, I can't remember, six, seven, or eight articles for the conversation early on. They, they kept calling me up and wanted me to write articles. Now they've censored me. They censored me a long time ago. Um, so I want, I want to highlight that. So here's one. And in fact, just on the, because that's one of the things I want to touch on, even the censorship. So when it comes to the comment section, the comment section used to be open. People commented as much as they wanted, for as long as they wanted. Now they close it after 72 hours or less if it's uh, information that could be considered um, breaching their standards. And so I, as a scientist, I have major concerns about this article. I was not allowed to post a You see, one comment. One person got a comment in. Not one. I can't comment on this article. I can have no public comment, comment on this. And so that's why, fine, so I'll comment now. If you don't allow me to do it here, I'll comment now. All right, and what I want you to see, there's two things that are very, very, very important. I want to use one example. Uh, they say that we don't follow the science and we don't understand the science. So I'm going to show you. So with your own eyes, because again, I don't want to be, well, Dr. Bridle said no. Dr. Bridle showed you, and you can have them show me something different if they don't agree with it. All right, so what you have to understand is they have a, a line in here, and they talk about this current uh, you know, outbreak. And one of the things that they're using to try and justify, these two scientists are using to try and justify, is they say that the... Um, that the, these vaccines have uh, been extremely good uh, at reducing the number of deaths and devastating illnesses. So look at this with your own eyes. Vaccines have helped us to avoid near certain disaster, right? With the current Omicron wave. And now, I, this is very important. The number of deaths and devastating illnesses would be much higher without them. All right, now you're gonna see with your eyes. So number of deaths, this is all the same hyperlinks. Number of deaths, okay? so. This is what they're citing, all right? Of all the scientists out there, they cite a letter, a non-peer-reviewed, this is not a peer-reviewed scientific article, this is a non-peer-reviewed letter to the editor, and this is arguing for the effectiveness of the, uh, the vaccine against the Omicron variant, 
And what you need to know here, I'm going to show you so you can see. So first of all, what's interesting is as awesome as they claim, and this is, this is biased data because they are showing, this is based on PCR test results. And, we, and again, you've heard, you know, we all know that the PCR test results doesn't necessarily mean COVID. All right. But the point is what they show here uh, in this data is that um, the 51%, they claim that there was a, uh, uh, of those that got in the study that got um, the Omicron variant of uh, COVID, that 51% were unvaccinated. So only 51, again, biased, but only 51. So this is not overwhelming. Even if that were true, how is that then overwhelming, uh, showing, showing the benefit? That means that 49% were either fully or partially vaccinated and got it, All right? Now, more importantly, what you need to understand is this was based on, uh, and I actually don't know how to go back to the original one, but what I can tell you is with this story, they, let me click on, okay, and I'm not sure how to get back to it, but anyways, this paper, so you can look it up, because here it is, it's talking about hospitalizations. Nothing to do with deaths. You saw that they were referring to deaths. You can, you can search the document. There's no, no doc data whatsoever on deaths, but they're using this as proof that it protected against deaths. This is the kind of misleading information that's happening. And then the other thing, um, I do wish I could, oh, here we go. Okay, so I'm going to end with this, because I think this is very, very important. Again, I've been trying to provide messaging to Canadians that I get concerned about as, as, you know, in terms of the direction we're going. The reason, truckers, why you have to hold the line, I think you can see over and over again, the science is on your side, but why you have to hold the line is it's not good enough. It's not going to be good enough to just say these current mandates are done. I agree 100%. The system that is in place that led us to these mandates has to be replaced. Okay. What you have to understand, I have now been talking about this openly and publicly for six months now. Six months. Early on, guess what? I kept making the argument that had we let physicians do their job, you know, we wouldn't have been dealing with all the deaths that we saw, not nearly that, that many. And, and therefore, we can then start making a comparison to how, where does it fall in the context of things like the flu, which can be very serious. Worse, the flu can actually kill our children. Uh, in much greater numbers than, than SARS-CoV-2 ever will, right? So I was using that argument to try and put SARS-CoV-2 into a relevant clinical context. I actually stopped that because I actually started getting quite scared that, you know what, I can see what's going to happen. They're going to start flipping the narrative. They're going to start using the flu to, in to institute all of this stuff. And it's a very small step to take in that direction. Once you have everybody so scared, we've seen the fear of Omicron, which is no worse for the vast majority of people than a bad cold. I'm telling you, not, I have copies on my computer of uh, screenshots from conversations that are going on on social media and from adults here in Ottawa. They're actually scared of the snow in Ottawa. And you know why? Because there are so many unvaccinated people that surely we must be contaminating the snow with massive quantities of SARS-CoV-2 and the snow is going to kill them. And I'm serious, they are requesting that government officials start testing the snowbanks in Ottawa. And so when you understand the depth of the fear that people have been have, have, have had drilled into their head about Omicron, it is a small step to start convincing them, you know what, whoops, we never, for some reason, we never saw it. We never saw how deadly dangerous the flu actually was, right? And I kept using that as an example. We lived with the flu. There's a certain quality of life that we accepted, right? And, and despite the fact that some people died with it, but now we've had this attitude, we can't have any de deaths due to any 
infectious disease that we label we don't want to have deaths with. People can die from all kinds of other things, cancers and all the other things that we aren't going to pay proper attention to right now. But all they have to do is start turning the focus on the flu. And I've said this from the beginning, if we put the spotlight on the flu, it would look very scary. If we put on the ticker tape over the news all the time, here's another case, here's another case, think about it. When your kids are in school, all, it starts off with one kid. Next day, there's three kids. Next day, there's 10. And then it's infiltrated 10 homes. And then it's into the surrounding classrooms. It spreads like wildfire, right? Being contagious is not necessarily a problem. That's what they've tried to scare us with here. Omicron definitely is contagious, but it is not particularly dangerous. And this is typical of these kind of viruses. If a virus wants to live with us for a long period of time, it doesn't want to kill its host. It wants to infect as many of us as possible and keep us alive. And ideally, the ideal situation for a virus is it causes no harm whatsoever. We happily coexist. All right? And Omicron is, is taking us to that direction. But I bring this up because you can see with your own eyes a healthier normal. Now look with your own eyes, flu. Flu largely disappeared over the two years. Well, you know what? When you have sick people, and this is the thing, this has been the, this has been the misunderstanding. We have drilled into people's heads that somehow healthy people are these carriers of deadly pathogens now that are gonna kill other people. If that's what you believe, we are never going to be able to demask or stop the physical distancing ever again for the rest of our lives. And I'm afraid people are actually wanting to take us there because look at this, a healthier normal, right? The flu disappeared. Guess what, people? Now, now we're going to start admitting the flu can be quite dangerous. It kills thousands of Canadians each year. It's very scary. We never appreciated this. For, we've lived with it for entire lifetimes, but we never appreciated it before. Uh, maybe we should start normalizing. And, of course, does this sound familiar with where you start off with? Mask wearing by, mask wearing by the vulnerable. Uh, luckily, I, I'm not frail elderly yet, but I don't want to become the frail elderly where the rest of you cause me to wear a mask for the rest of my life against yeah. my will. Yeah. So I'm telling you right now, because this is serious, this is why truckers, what's going to happen, even if they do rescind the mandate, please, we, all of us, Canadians, all over, we cannot say, okay, the mandate's gone, we did our job, we go home, we go back to normal, because otherwise they're going to find, as you've heard, another reason, and I'm putting forward uh, the flu as the, possibly the next one. And they're going to keep us locked down, and they're going to keep masking us, and they're going to keep, and if you don't believe me, you can look it up, the same companies that have these mRNA vaccines are making the same mRNA technology, use, applying those vaccines to the flu, and they're in clinical trial testing right now. The data looks just as awful. They're pushing it just as fast. And I can show you where, they, where um, Moderna issued the results of their clinical trial, and they were cut by a scientist who actually drew a line on the graph. So on the graph, they drew a line from the x-axis looking at the control group, which is the current vaccines that we use. And for their flu vaccine, they didn't work at all. But you know what they did? They actually offset their graphs. They shifted them down so they were sitting lower. So visually, it looked like they were slightly decreasing. Their, their vaccine is slightly decreasing the cases. So it's the same garbage being perpetuated. All right? And this is why we have to stand firm right now. How do we change the system? We follow the truckers. Well, thank you, Dr. Bridal, for that amazing talk. For all the doctors, please.
So we're going to now pivot to some questions. Um, and I can see all the hands go up at once. Um, we're going to uh, prioritize the questions uh, initially for people with, uh, with cameras. And then you know we can get some questions from the audience. For everybody's um, ease of hearing, I'm going to repeat the question. Um, and can you please direct the question at which doctor you would like to answer? Um, and we'll go with you first, please. Hi there, Naveen Day with British City News. This uh, question is for Dr. Alexander. I'm seeing a lot of uh, questions or a lot of comments on our social media feeds uh, with uh, the, the, the absence of Dr. Tam, New, and Deeks. Uh, uh, them not showing up is speaking volumes. Can you just uh, briefly tell us what kind of message does this send to Canadians with their absence? Okay, well, thanks very much for that question. I think Dr. Brittle was um, alluding to it there that um, I think it's, uh, it's like a glaring omission that um, they would be formally invited and that they would not, uh, not turn up or even send representatives. And the key with the invitation was that um, we made sure that we actually even um, including the Prime Minister's office and um, so that even at the highest levels of government that the Prime Minister would know and his office and they do know because we communicate routinely with them and we get direct responses back from them and not just a gen generic response. I get direct responses from direct people to me specifically. So I know that they get these communications. Um, I think it's, uh, it is, it's actually kind of shameful because uh, we have a very serious situation here. And as Dr. Birdle has said, essentially the pandemic is over. And um, I think what is happening now is that when you read the press right now, you can see that the public health officials at the federal level and the provincial level, they know it's over, but they just cannot let go. It's almost like this right now is about power and keeping this control over you. And uh, they do not want to end this, but it is very important what Dr. Brittle said. This is not just about ending these mandates. These mandates are moot. The mere fact that the vaccine does not stop transmission means the vaccine does not work, it has failed. So the mandates must be ended. But we have to, we have to lift and end the emergency declaration that underpins it because they will pivot back to that and impose other mandates on us going forward. So it's not just the mandates. We have to lift and declare the emergency over and all those emergency yeah. powers removed. Yeah. Yes, Gord. Uh, Gord Parks from Bright Light News. So one of the questions here is you said that the, uh, we're in this position because of uh, the legacy media, but also because of big pharma and government's collusion with them. We know that Health Canada, the FDA are very much in line with them. Uh, the FDA is a revolving door of pharma executives. It's uh, meant to regulate the drug industry, yet we have uh, pharma uh, basically controlling the FDA. It's the, a case of the fox garden and hen house. How do we change these massive power structures that have always existed? Fortunately, we still, at this moment, live in a democracy. We have a thing called elections. And that's the way to change it from the top. Because it's essentially a problem of governance, a fancy name that means how are organizations regulated. 
governance has to change. Governance is populated, multinationals are populated, every organization that represents an industry is populated by people who've, at the top, by people who got there because they've always agreed with the person above them in the hierarchy. It's populated by simple yes-men who've been brown-nosing the rest all their lives. Exactly the same in, in faculties of, of, of medicine, in, in universities. These people, these experts at the top of the pile, only got there because they said yes for 30 years. And they're not going to bite the hand that feeds them. So government has to turn off the spigot. The money is what is going to change things. By failing, by stopping the support of universities, which in my opinion are the principal reason we're in this mess, because of wokeism. Turn off the spigots in university. There'll be a gnashing of teeth. They'll be claiming that we're constraining liberty and freedom of speech. It's the other way around. They've been constraining speech. They've been restricting things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyone that's been to university recently will, will realize that. You get the drift really quick. If you want a good mark, don't piss off the prof, right? Conf comply. So that's the short... Short answer. <laughs> um, I also wanted to follow Dr. Hutchinson by saying this because I think we have to put this on the record. Look, a lot of things were done wrong across the world with this pandemic in terms of the response. And there are a lot of smart people like Bertel et al. who we've been informing the governments of the wrongs and, and what should be done but they never listen to us. And my point of view is this. I am always for everyone to have the ability to defend what you've done and to show how you got to where you got. But I, I, want, I want governments to understand that this time, for what has happened for two years now, this is not just simple and mere culpa. When we get to the end of this and we open our societies, we need proper commissions of inquiry. We need to go back. And we need every single person who made decisions, every single person. If you're the, you're, and, and I want you to be able to defend what you've done and show exactly how you got there. But if in a proper legal inquiry, proper, no kangaroo, properly done, you are allowed to defend and to show. But if it is ever shown that a public health official, a prime minister, a president, a MP and MPP, a premier, anyone made decisions that costed the lives of Canadians, of Americans, and whomever. I want you to be held accountable. I want the legal process to play a role. I want you, I want public health officials that killed their decisions costed lives. I don't know how to say it. And if we have to go back, I want you to face the same pain and suffering that families face. Dr. Hodkinson said it, we could not even bury our dead. Yes. We have parents who died and we couldn't even hold them. So I want you stripped of every cent, every single way that you benefited, whomever, any pharmaceutical, anyone, I want it taken away and you reduced because you costed lives and you have to be held accountable. Yeah. Yeah. Yes.
I just have two quick comments to add. One is uh, one of the things I forgot to point out because um, Dr. Alexander mentioned that right, legal cases, legal uh, recourse is is one of the logical ways to go in a democratic society, right? Uh, we we all agree. I mean, we've seen it's great with the truckers, right? They're here. Uh, this is not about violence. This is not about you know name calling. Uh, this is a peaceful protest that they're leading, and, and that's been my approach from the very beginning, right? Talk, you know, talk about from the educational component. Educate people. Uh, we, we have these. Uh, proper methods to follow the, the legal system and etc. Et uh, ideally, um, uh, politicians would help lead us out of this as well. And we are seeing some politicians step up. And I want to say kudos to those who are. They're starting to step up in greater numbers. Um, and, and, and but I do just want to point out because the one thing I forgot to mention is when it comes to court cases. Like I said, this was my report. This was Dr. Peter Uni's in the one. And, and I have yet to be in a court case where the decision is made based on the weight of the evidence. You, the Canadian public, have to ask why that is. Um, I, I look at these piles, and I think it's fairly obvious, you know, if you're going to make the decision based on the weight of the evidence. Uh, if you don't want to go with the one decision, I guess you don't make the decision based on the evidence. But that's what I want to tell you, is Dr. Alexander made a good point. As long as they're not kangaroo courts, and so far, and I don't understand these people, when you see come with slander and stuff, like, I reckon, I don't go, I'm not going into court uh, representing anybody. Right? People have to understand as a, in court, as, as an expert witness, I'm there to serve the court. Yes, one side recruits a given witness, but when I go there, if the truth goes against the person who recruited me, um, and, and even if they're paying me, uh, I'm there to tell the truth. And I present the scientific truth, period. Uh, and, and that's it. People need to recognize that, okay? So that's just what I want you to know. When it comes to the courts, I agree 100%. But we need to find a way to get our court systems making some of these decisions based on the evidence and not avoiding them, not finding the loopholes from, yes. from doing this. Okay, so it's very, very important. And, and, and the other thing I want to back up, the comment about universities, I, 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 you need to understand, because that's the core, is that's educating our, our future generations. And I want to recognize, because I am a faculty member, you need to recognize the, the number of students who have had their careers destroyed. They have not been allowed to either enter their programs or they were in, I mean, I'm telling you, I, I've been on, on the University of Guelph campus, I can tell you many, many stories of our students being physically removed from campus, deregistered from their programs, cases where they were being removed from their residence with their parents present trying to move them into the residence and it being declared to all the parents and students around them that those individuals were being removed because they weren't vaccinated and this kind of information. Our, uh, you know, our university systems, I'm a professor, is another story, but our academic institutions are rotten to the core. We, we can't speak up. We need to understand it. As a scientist, I, I have not been allowed on my campus since July of 2021. And, and I, don't ever, I don't know when I'll ever be allowed back again. Uh, open scientific discussion is no longer allowed. A colleague of mine was just told by his dean, discouraged by his dean, he teaches science, he teaches immunology, and apparently, he shouldn't be talking about COVID-19 as an immunologist talking about something because we don't want to talk about current cutting edge science that's right in the realm of immunology and that's affecting the entire world, you know, do we? So you have to understand our, our, our academic institutions, part of the answer to that question is we need to have our academic institutions become places again where young people who are going to start repopulating these positions, they need to be places where they can ask questions, where they can be free to think, free to speak and think critically. We'll go, we'll go Jim and then you after. Yeah, so this yeah. is uh, Ann Vandersteel of Steel Truth out of the United States. Go ahead, Ann. Thank you. Do you have any questions for Dr. Paul Vandersteel? 
He's going to prosecute. Yeah. I think I got the question, and I'm going to repeat it. The yeah. question, if I'm right, is how are we going to prosecute? Um, Colluding organization. Yeah, in a RICO yes. case. It, yeah, in it's crimes against humanity. Yeah. And it's to and it's to Dr. Alexander. Okay. Well, uh, thanks very much for directing the question. And uh, so that's the question, really: who's going to prosecute the wrongdoing? And uh, I think Dr. Brittle was kind of answering it. The issue right now, because what he said is which is a fact, because I know of that case with Dr. Juni. <laughs> Dr. Brittle presented the evidence, um, mountains of evidence, and Dr. Juni presented a few pages and didn't even treat the science that Dr. Brittle presented. He sloughed it off with these generic statements. And then the court ruled in his favor. That's the bottom line of what Dr. Brittle is saying, that you can go in there right now in the courtroom and you could prevent, present the science, but you're still getting ruled against. And I can tell you, I myself, I know Dr. Hawkinson, etc. we're involved in different court cases across Canada and even the United States where we are providing affidavits, etc. And we are routinely getting ruled against when we are actually presenting the actual science. So it's, it seems that the court now has gotten corrupted in this present era that we're in. Yeah. And that is the challenge. The challenge is COVID has fleshed out and shown us something that is very rotten in our societies, rotten in the academic publishing. The medical journals are like garbage now, I have to tell you. We don't even try to publish in the medical uh, journals anymore. Uh, the field of evidence-based medicine is dead. Evidence-based medicine and academic research killed itself over COVID. Yes. It's the most fascinating thing. We didn't do this to it. It did this to itself. And um, I think the challenge here is how you're going to get the right people now. And what Dr. Bodo was saying, which is true, I think it's about educating people. We have to keep writing and talking as we're doing and hoping that we could get through to these judges and these people in decision-making positions who are brave enough. This is about bravery. Because I, let me be as frank as I could be. Persons like myself, persons like Brittle Hodgkinson, Dr. Mark Trozzi, a colleague of mine, Dr. Kulvinda Gill, uh, Dr. Francis Christian, etc. These people have been attacked because they were either advocating for early treatment, uh, raising questions about the vaccine safety, which was credible questions because they took a 15-year process and boiled it down into four months. And we have credible questions because we know the past performance of these vaccines and how they behaved in the animal trials post-SARS 2003. We know how these vaccines, types of vaccines, failed for RSV in children in the 1960s. We know what happened in dengue vaccine, uh, vaccine for dengue fever in the Philippines in 2017. We know about the H1N1 2009. We know about the narcolepsy. We know about these issues. We know about the Guillain-Barre from the 1976-1977 pandemic. We know how the vaccines fail. So we are correct. We are correct to question it. And look, I have been part of Operation Warp Speed and I would say to that extent, I have serious, serious problems with it. 
I have serious problems. I sat down in a meeting with Monsef Slawi. Monsef Slawi, who was one of the senior vaccine developers in Moderna, explained to the media, when the media pressed him and asked him, how could you tell me that a four-month vaccine is safe when we know it takes 10 to 12 to 15 years? And Slawi told the media, well, we have adjusted for that by sample size. So I'm sitting down there and I'm listening to these people and I'm saying, but this guy is a nut. And I mean, he, he's the head of the Moderna vaccine. And I realized he understood nothing about research methodology because you could never circumvent time with sample size. You could not do that. But he seemed to didn't understand that. And the media is not informed. So you need Brittle, you need me, you need Hodkinson. To, to keep on the case and informing the public as hard as it is to try and hope that we could even get to these judges and at least educate them. Because as you know, the legal matters actually always won or lost in the court of public opinion. And these judges are impacted by what's happening in society. So we need to keep going in society because we will eventually get to them. But it is a putrid mess. It's a hot mess right now because we are in front of many courts Right now, I am, similar to Dr. Brittle, with cases, and we get constantly shot down and ruled against, and we are actually providing the science. But we're not going to stop. We're going to keep trying. So, so again, just to reemphasize, and, and my, my experience is not, and not even being shot down, it's just nothing, the ruling not even being made on the evidence. The other thing I just want to point out um, from a personal perspective is, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm upset that these three individuals didn't come today to talk about the science. And I just want to make it very clear from my personal perspective that, you know, I came today with the intention, we, all, we, all, all of us want is to get out of here, right? Um, personally, I, I'm, not, I'm not going to, you know, attack these individuals. I was, I was honestly hoping. So, you know, to give her a due, Dr. Teresa Tam has been starting to change the messaging recently, right? I mean, the reality is they have to. The Omicron data does not at all support, not only does it not support, but it contradicts the narrative. So they have to. But again, I, I, but I don't care about reasons why people are doing something at this point. The first step for all is to get rid of the mandates, right? That's the first thing. Then we can cover all all these other things. I personally would love to sit down with these individuals, talk openly about the, talk openly about the science, uh, and move forward from where we are right now, right? Um, just so that I just want to make that clear. I think that's what we all need to push forward on is let's be productive right now and, and solve the current, you know, pressing problems. And then we can deal with the system that got us here after, right? But I think we need to agree to work together on this. You and then you first, and then Laurel after. Yeah, go ahead. Hi, Randall Burgess from Laurel TV. Um, I was wondering if somebody could address the aspect of the hospital protocols and how they've chained doctors into um, a formulatic um, procedure in treating people that come in with COVID symptoms that um, has been egregiously harmful to people. What 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 should we expect? What can we do in the future to to change that? Government has got to stop pretending it's your doctor. Yes. When we have a sick person in front of us, we have the right, we have the right, 
to use drugs that are called off-purpose drugs, drugs that are approved for some other purpose, they've been shown to be safe, like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, for different reasons. They've been shown to be safe, and a doctor with a sick person in front of them believes that that drug is going to be effective for this person. That discussion takes place with the patient, and the patient decides, am I going to believe the doctor? Is it a balanced risk? To say yes or no. That's how medicine operates, regularly. The vast majority of, of uh, medications that are prescribed now are repurposed drugs for many and various conditions. It's standard practice in medicine. That right has been taken away from us. The right of a physician with a sick person in front of them who wants to use a particular drug, the government has said no. And if you do it, you're going to lose your livelihood. Have I got your attention yet? The government is now your doctor. You have to stand up and defend doctors here who yes. want to treat you. We want to treat you in the traditional way. We close the door. We have a confidential conversation with you that, that talks about the risk and the benefit. And then you decide as the patient what to do. That's how traditional medicine was. But those two rights have been now taken away from us. We've had them for hundreds of years. Medicine is not going to be the same when this dust settles. When the autopsy of this mad period of time is written by the likes of Alex Berenson and Dellingpole in Britain, a, a thin booklet in lay language that lays out the devastation that's been caused by these idiots running the show. Yeah. When that hits the lay mind, I don't think we're prepared for the revulsion that's going to be seen internationally. It's going to change institutions in general. Yes. And people understand the degree to which they've been lied to, intentionally, over a period of two years, affecting their children and the funerals of their parents, etc., etc. This massive toll that's affected every single person on earth, the revulsion is going to be something that politicians are not prepared for. And it is going to change so much of what we do. So thank you, COVID. Thank you, COVID, for focusing us on the point of the spear is sticking at us, and we've reacted to it. Don't ever poke the Canadian bear. I would love to give the audience an opportunity to ask a question, if there's, if there's anybody who... Yes, sir. Yep. You can just project your voice. That would be great. Sure. Uh, I'm very much interested in truth, freedom, and health. And uh, some of the panelists may know about Dr. Shiva in Massachusetts. And uh, he's evidence-based, uh, working on the science, system science. And my question for the Canadian context is, who, anyone in the room, knows about using uh, pre-notice of liability to stop and correct inform the people who make decisions that they're doing harm or potential harm, then serving a notice of liability and using the small claims course, we as individuals, without using a lawyer. Can anyone speak to that? Well, it's not really a doctor's question, you know, so. Yeah, do you have uh, people you can refer us to? Uh, uh, are you gonna be here for the weekend? Yes. 
Okay, so there's going to be a uh, two-hour on the hill uh, tomorrow from noon till two, I believe is, is my question. Um, Please all come. Yes. A question. Oh. If I may ask a question of my colleagues in sure. terms of what they may feel about the fact that on February 2nd, the Office for National Statistics in Britain admitted, realized, and described that when they did a test on the first 7,000 children, that British children are up to 52 times more likely to die following a COVID shot than unvaccinated children. In the eight months following the vaccination, eight months more likely to die, or sorry, 52 times more likely to die in those eight months. I know you gentlemen know this same study as I do. Would any of you wish to comment? Yes, well, well, I think um, I recently saw that publication myself, and, I'm be and I've begun to study the data. And um, I mean, <laughs> look, we've said from the word go that um, looking at the data since uh, January, February 2020, that children were at a statistical zero risk of being infected in the first place with COVID. Uh, children don't spread this to, to other children. Children don't take it home. Uh, like how they are the seat of, um, of seasonal influenza and they drive that home. Um, the spread to children is often from adult to child and from home clusters often. Uh, the data shows us clearly, it's been very stable, that uh, children don't get severely ill or die. I mean, we had a seminal study in uh, mid of 2020 coming out of uh, Sweden by Ludvigsen. Uh, where he looked at um, all of the 1.95 million sweet kids, 0 to 16 years old, and uh, followed them across the entire pandemic. And they found in Sweden that not one child died from COVID. We have data from Germany looking at all of the children, between 5 to 16 healthy children. They found that not one child died across the entire COVID. They looked at uh, data also in places like uh, Norway, etc., and they found that not one child has died of COVID. So the data is very stable, very stable. There was a seminal study um, out of the French Alps published in Clinical Infectious Diseases in mid-2020 also that looked at, which actually showed us early on the low risk in children. It followed one child that was infected, nine-year-old, uh, positive child, symptomatic. And it followed this child across France because that child went to three different primary schools across a period of time. And they looked at all of the contacts and all of the teachers they touched. And they found that in not one case was there any secondary transmission even. So we knew very, very early. We knew of the study by Kao et al. Uh, this out of China published in Lancet very early in 2020 that showed us that it was a 10 million base sample they found of all of the positive persons who moved around and they looked at all of the contacts, there was no asymptomatic transmission even. So we understood this, this virus very, very clearly, very early on. And we understood that children were at statistical zero risk in terms of being infected and in terms of severe outcomes. And uh, the challenge for us today is this. All of the studies that have been done and published by Moderna and Pfizer have been of short duration. 
they've not followed the studies properly in terms of the severity and the harms that could accrue. Yet we also have actual evidence of pericarditis and myocarditis, CVST, etc., that has turned up. So we know that these vaccines are very harmful to young persons. So that is why we've been arguing, and that is why when this study emerges, it is, it is very troubling because what is happening is what we've told them is going to happen, that these vaccines are harmful to children. And I'll put it to you as bluntly as I can. I am saying that if we move forward in Canada with a carte blanche vaccination of our Canadian children, we run the risk of killing many children in Canada from these vaccines. We do have that risk. And I'm calling on governments to stop, to stop. Children do not bring the risk to the table. These vaccines confer no benefit and skews only towards harms. Children should be left alone. They have their very potent first line of defense, innate immunity, which normally serves them and protects them against a broad range of pathogen. We have Dr. Gerd van den Bosch telling us, and he's a global expert, that the vaccinal antibodies can suppress and outcompete the innate antibodies. And if that happens, as he predicts, mm -hmm. we can leave children very defenseless to a host of pathogens and it can be, they can become severely ill and die. So the government, the people in the federal government's task force and the provincial government's task force, they need to get contemporary with the science. They need to talk to Dr. Byron Brittle. They need to call in Dr. Gerd van den Bosch. They need to call in these scientists and experts who are very, very up to date, who understand the immunology and understand the vaccinology. The people we have on these task force are inept. I am being as blunt and as nice as I can. As Dr. Brittle says, I want this to work with, with Dr. Tam and Dr. New. Let us have this Let's embrace and have a very good discussion. But they need to be open because everything that they have done so far has failed. We are here because they failed. And this is the issue. So allow people to the table that could bring the science to you and explain it so we could try to come out of this situation because the way they're going at this point, I don't see an end in sight. And the truckers seem to be our one way out now. And we must stand behind them to get to the end of this. Thank you. speak to this issue about children as well so uh, the thing is this right the the vaccine manufacturers argued that they ran studies clinical studies uh, in children and they didn't see any major harms so I, I just want to highlight this again when, when they say that they what they forget to tell you is uh, you heard this before about numbers and trying to make up for a lack of being able to evaluate the, the potential harms of things over long term with larger numbers well the, these trials with children are very low numbers and so when you're dealing with, when you're looking at a group of 1,400 vaccinated individuals, then we have to remember some of the problems we've been seeing coming out of these young people are, are, are related to sex differences, right? So we know, for example, the heart inflammation, uh, it occurs both in males and females, but it does occur preferentially among the males. And so if you break down these populations, you know, you're looking at something that happens mainly in males, you're talking about 700 kids that were tested, right? And now you ask yourself, so in Canada, Canada, we, we defined for ourselves a long time ago what's too dangerous, because we said that a one in 55,000, and I will say that, that we probably almost certainly underestimated the severity of the problem, but again, I, I go with the numbers that are out there. 
They, we defined in Canada that a 155,000 risk of a potentially harmful blood clot and was too dangerous for Canadian adults. Again, I'd like to emphasize that. One in 55,000, so if one in 55,000 Canadian adults were at risk of getting uh, a serious blood clot. We declared that too dangerous. So you just have to ask yourself, if you're running a study then with 1,400 children, what are, your, what are your chances of detecting something that occurs in one in 55,000 children? Right? I mean, it's just common sense. It's just common sense. These trials were not designed to identify things that can happen in our children that are too dangerous for adults, let alone children, which are at even lower risk. You know, that's really all we need to know. And then also, in answering that question, we don't even have to talk about the children. We just have to go back, right? Pfizer was required, uh, and, and as they should, as they continue to conduct their, their clinical trials, which are destroyed now, like we don't realize there's no controls left, right? They vaccinated all the controls. I can tell you, we are experts when it comes to science. Uh, anybody, it's basic science. If you have, uh, if you're running a scientific experiment and you have one treatment group, you can draw no conclusions. Zero conclusion. Like, if you didn't catch that, a basic experiment means you have to have at least two groups. You have to, if you're looking at the effect of one thing, you have to have one other group where that thing hasn't happened. The perfect experiment is you have every single thing controlled between two groups and only one thing differs between the two of them. Well, we don't, we don't have a control group anymore for these, just so that you know. But they did update their data, Pfizer, their data. And so we're talking about the data from the original variants for which these vaccines were designed. And I can't emphasize this enough. With, in the context of the original variants for which these vaccines were designed, the vaccines completely and utterly failed in their goals. That is not highlighted, but it is published data. And what they did is they put most of this in what they call the supplementary data section, where you got to go down to the bottom of the page. First of all, to understand you got to be a scientist it's tough slogging you have to be a scientist with deep expertise and the areas relevant to be able to read these documents and dissect them then they buried the data in supplementary data sections where you got to click on a little link it doesn't come up with the with the uh, the paper itself but their own data shows their own data showed if you do a cost-benefit analysis so it did show it did show a benefit of reducing the uh, percentage the, the occurrence of COVID-19 uh, compared to those who are unvaccinated a small benefit, a small benefit, I like to emphasize, okay? It showed a much, uh, a disproportionately large increase in the experience of severe adverse events in those. So even when it comes down in the original vaccinated group, but we had no control group. So for all we know, again, I'll admit as a scientist, maybe if we had sold the control group, there would have been four or five deaths in the unvaccinated. We really don't know because we don't have a properly conducted trial. But the, the, the result is crystal clear. When it came to hospitalizations and deaths, their own data showed there was no, what we can say, as a scientist, we can say that the statistical analysis tells us there was no statistically significant benefit of the Pfizer vaccine in reducing hospitalizations or deaths. And so we don't even need to talk about the children because what that tells you is now we're talking about the Omicron variant and for which these vaccines are now massively outdated. So not only with children, these vaccines make no sense whatsoever and never did for anybody, adults and children alike. We're a little over uh, time. Any further questions you can direct after after the broadcast. So um, first of all, thank you very much for coming. I would like to acknowledge um, the, the support of Taking Back Our Freedoms and hosting this event. Um, I would also like to point out that we did give them an opportunity to join by Zoom.
in case they didn't want to join in person. That's important. And um, also, thank you so much uh, for, for your patience and your time and this amazing conversation. And honk, honk. Excuse me, just one more point here. Um, as you're all aware, distributing this information has become challenging. I'm working with the Taking Back Our Freedoms team. So tonight there's going to be an official live show release, a premiere, at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And the website link for that is tbof.ca. Okay, so please share that around and let's get the message out. Thank you for your time. I can barely use my legs. Oh, I bet. I bet you're just all done. All right, everyone. What an unprecedented time we've had here in Canada. We have seen something absolutely amazing take place, and that is real doctors telling the real truth on Canadian land. It's streaming out far and wide. It'll make a difference. Back home in my province.